It's a damn tough life full of toil and strife we weathermen undergo. And we don't give a damn when the gale is done, how hard the winds did blow. Cause we're homeward bound from the Arctic ground with a good ship taut and free. And we won't give a damn when we drink our rum with the girls of old Maui. Rolling down to old Maui, me boys, rolling down to old Maui. We're homeward bound from the Arctic ground, rolling down to old Maui. Welcome to Higgledy Piggledy Whale Statements. I'm Mark. And I'm Ben. And this is our uh, post-book wrap-up episode. Is this is this episode the first of the appendices? Uh, I think that's for literary scholars of the future debate. No, I have to put it in the title of the podcast, yeah, Ben. Yeah, I, I honestly don't know. Like, that's the thing. I think that the appendices we've been thinking are going to be adaptations and connected works and generally things, you know, s- supporting things like this. Whereas this really feels more like, say, an epilogue. It's summing up and dealing with some stuff from the main work itself. So okay. I think it could go either way. I mean, the thing is, I was planning on indicating the appendices as like season two in terms of like the way podcasts are categorized. Ooh. Hmm. So yeah, does this? Maybe I think this don't... is definitely season one. Yeah, that's kind like of like if, what you, I if think you think about it in terms of seasons, it's definitely season one. Even if it's like the denouement episode rather than like the actual like climactic finale, you know. Yeah, that makes sense. This to is me. our scouring of the Shire. Okay. In that it will be cut from most theatrical adaptations for extending the story unnecessarily. Sure, sure. Is that what the scouring of the Shire is? It's it's an event that happens after the main plot of Lord of the Rings when they get back to the Shire and they have to. It turns out that Saruman and his jerks have all moved in. And they have to deal with him. Ah, okay. I I knew that there was a part in The Lord of the Rings called The Scouring of the Shire that involved, like, dealing with Saruman and such in the Shire. Oh, but you thought um, he was the one doing the scouring? Yes. No, no, And no, no, so no. I it's... was like, that doesn't really make any sense as a thing that happens after the climax. But yeah, no, no, no. It's that, uh... They're also, like... spoilers for Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Even more so than Moby Dick, I'm not concerned about spoiling Lord of the Rings. Uh, anyways, it's it's a bit that didn't get end up in like the theater in the movie version, and uh, it's it's an interesting bit that deals a bunch with you know stuff in Lord of the Rings that I don't feel the need to get into right now. But the point being that it, it happens after the bits everyone thinks is like the the actual like meaningful story end of Lord of the Rings. Yeah, I, I... there's no more Lord or Rings at that point. Yeah, is it? I I feel like I'd have some friends listening who have very strong pro-scouring the Shire oh. opinions. And so I don't want to make them feel like I'm dismissing it, but I, I just... What I'm actually dismissing is the Lord of the Rings in general, which maybe will annoy <laughs> people even more. But I, I, I just... Oh. I just grew up with a lot of friends who were extremely into the Lord of the Rings, and I didn't see it at the time. Yeah. And I haven't really gotten over that, because sometimes when all of your friends as teens are into a thing, that just puts a feeling in your mind about it forever. Yeah, no, I, I know exactly what you mean. And I honestly, I feel that way about the actual act of reading The Lord of the Rings. I, you know, I, I'm i not as strongly dedicated to it as many uh, readers of fantasy. But anyways, 
Ignoring that long series of books by uh, from the early 20th century, let's instead look at this long book from the mid-19th century. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I believe the um, first thing on the docket for this, which I guess is the last of the pre-appendix episodes... Sure. Uh, ...is we both used a uh, sorter to decide what our favorite chapters were. Yeah, and I... I... I, my intention is to post this sorter in the Abnormal Mapping Discord. Uh, I haven't done this yet because I finished using the sorter last night, like late last yeah, night. Yeah, it, it I, takes a really long time to sort 130, sorry, 137 separate objects into yes, an order. because we included both the front matter and extracts and the epilogue as items in the list. So yeah, mm -hmm. there's 137 items in the list. Takes a long time to go through the sorter. Yeah, I think it was um, something like 500 to 600. Which do you prefer, this one or that one for me? Yeah, and I just, like, basically I wanted to finish doing it to make sure that it worked because um, <laughs> the way that I made this sorter is that uh, I, like, asked about it in the Discord and then Joao sent me a DM and was like, here's a, here's a link to a thing. And it was instructions for how to make one of these for your Tumblr. And I was like, I don't want to make a Tumblr post. <laughs> so I just, you know, copied all the HTML text and made it an HTML file on my computer. And that worked fine. Uh, so that's the file that I'm intending to post. Um, it's very impressive. It, but, works, it works quite well. But yeah, you can imagine why I was like, eh, let me make sure that this thing where I like yeah. don't understand how it works and I just kind of copied and pasted like the names of the titles of the chapters into the like options list. Let me make sure it actually functions all the way to the end before I give it to a bunch of other people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, but it does function. So yep, yeah. It worked. We, we both have our lists. Uh, I noticed definitely that the later chapters got a pretty heavy... Um, like uh, mm, presence in my best of list. Something I've been wanting to do is create some kind of like chart where um, the, the the way I'm imagining this chart, and this may not be the best way to visualize this data. If someone else has a better suggestion, I'm open to it. But the mm. thing that I'm imagining is like a chart in which uh, the X axis is just like chapters in order. Right, so it's like yeah, chapter, chapter one, two, three, four goes all through. Etc. Uh, start, starting actually with the, the um, chapter zero and then on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the and and there's like a um, you know like a bar in each of those slots. And then mm. the y-axis, how tall the bar is, is, is ranking from first as highest. Exactly, and so like you'll be able to see the kind of like contours of like where the highest ranked chapters are. Yeah, um, yeah. Because I definitely did get a little bit of that feeling of like, yeah, I'm ranking the later chapters higher. Um, but it would be interesting to actually see that visually. Yeah. I, rather I than just kind of making a general estimation of it based on looking at the list. Uh, so maybe I'll figure out how to make this concept in Excel or some shit. Um. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyways, the, the reason we're doing this is just because it's a way of getting back over the book as a whole and a way into that very large discussion. You know, a cutting in, you might say. Yeah, no, I definitely like doing all this ranking. I mean, it meant that I was like flipping through the entire book and like flipping back to yeah, earlier yeah. chapters and kind of skimming them again to remind myself of what's in there. 
Um, One thing it reminded me of is there's a couple nothing chapters. Like, not just, like, there's a few chapters that are very short, and I think those ended up, like, at the very bottom of my list. But uh, there's a few nothing chapters, like The Decanter. I think I complained about that at the time, but it really is not improved in retrospect. Yeah, there are definitely some chapters where there's just not a lot going on. Um, I also think that, uh, like, something that I I think in some ways maybe kind of messed up my ranking Mm -hmm. is that there are at least a couple chapters where the title of it and like the primary body of the chapter is one thing and then there's like a bit in it that's easy for me to forget but that's 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 really cool that's really excellent yeah yeah Yeah, Um, one thing i will say is that as much as i'm complaining about the nothing chapters the overall number of chapters that i'm genuinely like i don't think this improved the book that much is very low um yeah, I mean, look, it's a fucking good book. The chapters oh, yeah, no, in it, it are good. Oh, yeah, it absolutely is, yeah. Like, well, we can get to the bottom of our list eventually, but first, let's, let's go through the top of the list. You yeah. were saying you might want to just uh, list out the top ten, and then we can talk, we can look at each other's lists and talk a bit about how they differ. Yeah, I'm trying to remember which, uh, oh, I think maybe the Spec Cinder is, is a, a really good example of a chapter where, like, it uh, seems like it should be nothing, right? Yeah, it's like, oh, this is just Ahab ta- or Ishmael. This is just Ishmael talking about like historical, uh, you know, rank structures among whalers, and like saying that he wants harpooners to be more important. And like that is the bulk of what the chapter's about, and that's what the title concerns. But the then it also being the uh, the fat cutter. Yes, but it also has, you know, uh. But Ahab, my captain, still moves before me in all his Nantucket grimness and shagginess. Uh, and it, like it has this whole thing about him as one of the uh, the elect and the uh, the inert. The, it refers uh, to him as God's true princes of the empire and the choice hidden handful of the divine inert. Yeah. So yeah, I feel like that. I feel like the Spec Cinder may have gotten kind of uh, lower on my ranking than, in a certain sense, it really should be because. The part in it that I really like, I kept forgetting, was there. Yeah, I I remembered that in the Spec Center because I went over and checked it. And so the Spec Center ended up, for me, one second, uh, a pretty solid uh, height in the list. I think definitely above... Well, now I'm not seeing it. Sorry, a lot of uh, chapters... Oh, yeah, it ended up at 58. So okay, in... I mine ended up at 57. So it's actually, reliable, I guess. Yeah, this, this ranker is science. Okay, let's let's get to our top tens. <laughs> Ishmael therefore disagrees with it. <laughs> okay, do you want to go first or should I? Yeah, I can go. Okay. Um, and we'll go up from ten. Okay. To build uh, drama. Sure, sure, sure. That's how you got to do these. Okay, kinds if of we're things. gonna do building drama, we should be doing each. Cha- we should. Oh, both you're be- totally right. We should be like, here's my ten. Here's my ten. Okay, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. All right. So, so my. Number 10 is The Chase, First Day, Chapter 133. Solid. My number 10 is Chapter 32, Cetology. Okay. Um, I Where did I have... Oh man, I had Cetology down at 34. Wow. Yeah. Um, Not respecting the whale anti-science. I know. Um, uh, for number 9, I have Chapter 57 of Whales in Paint, in Teeth. In wood, in oh. sheet iron, in stone, in mountains, in stars. Look, if we're doing it on the basis of best title of chapter, that one would have won from the start. But uh, 
Uh, you'll see where I put that one, but I for 9, I actually had The Doubloon, Chapter 99, which I expected to be higher, but there's just so much good stuff in this book. Yeah, yeah, my I ranked The Doubloon at 13, mm. uh, which is still very high. Like, yeah, I would yeah. say everything above, like, 48, 50-something in this list is something that I would point to and be like, oh, that's a really good chapter. Yeah, yeah, no, no, there's at least, like, here's the thing. Good chapters, at least into, like, the 90s, if not the hun somewhere in the hundreds. Really good chapters, something like the 50 or 60 mark. Uh, masterpiece chapters, something in the, like, 20 mark. Yeah. Uh, okay, so my uh, number eight is... Well, did you do your... Your nine was the... Was uh, Whales and Paint. Whales and Paint, yes, yes, sorry. Yeah. My number eight is chapter 41, Moby Dick. Oh, interesting. Mine, that was actually my 13. My number eight is The Triworks, chapter 96. Okay, all right. For some reason, on the list, it numbered both seven and eight as seven, and I don't know how that happened. Okay, well, but I, I it don't does, know. it's not a problem. Uh, but yeah, no, The Triworks... I, I'm assuming The Triworks didn't make it into your uh, anywhere above... It's 21 for me. 21, yeah. So I it's, really it... liked The Triworks. It's got some really, like, virtuoso language. Is it... You know, sur the Pequod surges through the night. I just thought the image was so strong. Yeah, yeah, I'm not totally shocked that your ranking of the Triworks is significantly higher than mine. Mm -hmm. um, uh, for number seven, I have chapter 119, The Candles. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I have chapter 93, The Castaway, which again, I think I've had a bit of a bias towards the sort of, um, the virtuoso passages of language. Like, the Castaway has this amazing sequence with, you know, God's foot on the treadle of the loom, and also that amazing, uh, like, um, metaphor that we had to unpack and develop to understand the, the jewel metaphor with Pip. So the yeah. Castaway made it above things that, you know, are maybe closer to thematic uh, cores of the book that I care more about than precisely what's going on with Pip, but the language of it was just so good. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I agree. The Castaway is excellent. Mm -hmm. uh. I, I notice neither of us is saying where that chapter got for the other well, chapter got for us. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, number six for me is chapter forty-two: the whiteness of the whale. Mm, that's one that I actually that didn't end up in my top ten. Yeah, uh, I, I, I could kind of tell. So, like, when we were doing these rankings, we would occasionally say to each other, like, oh, man, I got this really difficult one to decide, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. these two chapters. And so I kind of got a feel from that discussion of, like, what you were ranking yeah, high. Yeah, yeah. And I could kind of tell I'm ranking the whiteness of the whale a lot higher than Ben is. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I just, the whiteness of the whale, I think, is, like, important. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely, like, here's the thing. This is not fundamentally a list of, like, important chapters. No, there no. Are, there are some chapters that got higher because of their importance, but uh, there are some chapters that are very important or useful for the narration and development that I ranked much lower just because I thought, like, I think The Whale Watch, the one where uh, yeah, the... Ahab and Fidal are talking about these prophecies, super important to the entire ending of the book. If you removed it, it would hugely impact the structure of the book and its meaning and, like, how it deals with the supernatural versus the natural. But the chapter itself is perfectly good but not yeah amazing there's nothing really subtle or like of of sort of complex literary interest to me in the whale watch yeah even the way that it like deploys the concept of prophecy i think is like weirdly 
Um, it's just so you know, and I know that we've previously talked about this, but I'm checking it again with you. Yeah, like I don't want to make it sound like I think it's an actively bad oh, chapter. No, no, no. It has a, a lot of mood, but yeah, no, I agree with you. The Whale Watch, not a standout chapter, despite in a certain sense being very important. Yes, and I think part of it is that it's really just trying to give you this information. It's not, mm. you know, it's not Shakespeare's witches in Macbeth, even though it's serving much the same function, where it's like this phantasmagoria as you get the prophecy. It's just laying out. Ahab knows these things were the signs of his death. Yeah. and This I, is already established. And I think, by the way, by contrast, speaking of chapters that are, like, important yeah. versus, like, important to you and me, I think Whales and Paint is yeah, not and important in fact, to the book. Six, my six is whales of Whales and Paint in teeth, in wood, in sheet iron, in stone, in mountains, in stars. Yeah. I think that it's a really good chapter, and I think that in terms of communicating Ishmael's weird obsessions and ideas, it's fantastic. And I think that the way the chapter builds is beautiful, and it has some just wonderful references and concepts. It's a really good chapter. It's my sixth favorite chapter, according to the sorting system. But yes, it is way less important to the book as a whole than The Whale Watch. Yeah. Um, by the way, speaking of like our personal favorites, where did you rank The Whiteness of the Whale? Oh, The Whiteness of the Whale actually ended up relatively low. I, I think Moby Dick and Cytology kind of ate its lunch. Uh, Whiteness of the Whale ended up at 27. Okay, well, that's not super Oh, I mean, bad. it's still The Whiteness of the Whale. Come on. Yeah, yeah. But no, for me, The Whiteness of the Whale was like thematically central to the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, uh... For ranking five, mm -hmm. I've got chapter 37, Sunset. Um, Interesting. That's one that I kept seeing, and I, I did, it did end up pretty high for me. It ended up around, uh, uh, that one ended up 24, actually. Interesting. Um, but I just felt that I had a number of other Ahab soliloquies and speeches that, like, similarly, the Sphinx ended up even lower than that. And I love oh, the Sphinx. Oh, wow. I love the Sphinx, but... Uh, or wait, where is the Sphinx? Let me check. No, Sphinx ended up higher than that at 17. I tell a lie. But the Sphinx and uh, Sunset both sort of were like, these are really good, but they're competing in a bracket of Ahab speeches that mm. is just phenomenal. And that kind of dings them because it means that they become presentiments of and early statements of ideas and concepts and imagery that will later burst into full bloom on the stage. Like, on some level, the Sphinx is uh is the castaway or um uh like elements of uh shoot there's other moments where ahab expresses this like the mystery and darkness and dread of the whale in longer and more elaborated concepts or like the candles even appears and is re repeats ideas that show up in the sphinx and for that reason while i love the sphinx dearly it didn't end up in the top 10 yeah, for me, uh, I guess I might have uh, valued some of these Ahab speeches a little higher than you did because, yeah, because the Castaway is number four for me, um, and the Sphinx is number twelve. Yeah, um, the Castaway isn't actually an Ahab speech; it's it's just um, oh, it's, so, but it's the mystery element. I meant to say, oh, I I, I gave one away. What I meant to say is that <laughs> uh, number four is Sunset for me. But it yes, that is also true that the next five is Sunset, right? Five is Sunset. Number yeah. four is the castle. Yeah, so for my me. five is the symphony. Um, honestly, the symphony is just... Uh, similarly, the symphony and the Pequod meets the Rachel were both, are both chapters I really hold in high esteem. Like, the, the pathos of them, the emotion, uh, 
the phrase that got the symphony so much ahead of uh, Pequod Meets the Rachel that Pequod Meets the Rachel actually dropped out of my top ten, basically, is, uh, and not all, like, something like, and not all the wealth of all the oceans in the world was sucked, uh, not all the wealth of the Pacific could compare to what was in that single drop when Ahab sheds a single tear into the ocean. It's extremely melodramatic, even kind of cheesy when stated independent of its, like, actual scene, but for me, that just chokes me up. It's just this fantastic moment of Ahab's humanity and sympathy with that, and then his interactions with Starbuck here, this moment when he might, if at any moment he might, turn away from his quest. There's just so much there that the symphony, uh, I just think it's fantastic, and that or the Rachel had to be in here. Yeah, God, weird. I mean, I basically agree with everything you just said, but the symphony is number 26 and the Pequod meets the Rachel is number 28 for me. There's just a lot here. Yeah, no, I I, I think that's really what we're seeing on some yeah. level. I think um, also I suspect that you, um, your Starbuck chapters were not primarily Ahab and also Starbuck chapters, if you yeah, see what I mean. Yeah, I mean, you'll, you'll see. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> but, but yeah, no, I, I I agree that, like, I feel similarly with you that the interaction between Ahab and Starbuck in the symphony is, like, extremely strong and extremely interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. Um, okay, so, uh, your four was The Castaway? Yeah, chapter 93, yeah. The so, Castaway. I've already talked about why I really like The Castaway, and I'm curious about your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I... I I think that, like, I guess in a similar, like, you, you compared the castaway to the Sphinx, and I, it, yeah. it totally is in, in, they are expressing something similar about, like, the strange knowledge present at the depths of the ocean. Yeah. Um, I think in a lot of ways, the Sphinx sets up the castaway, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but, uh, I guess I felt like, um... The castaway is also responding to, like, the whiteness of the whale mm. and to the sort of generally running theme of, like, unknowability. Mm-hmm. Um, and the castaway is, like, this sort of weird outlier among the parts of the book that are dealing with that theme because the castaway is like, well, maybe it is actually possible to know everything, mm-hmm. but, like, what would that do to a human being Mm. like what would that actually mean um yeah the castaway is a moment of revelation yeah and 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 it's something that i don't really think appears elsewhere in the novel and and so like that makes it very interesting Mm. to me i'll i'll respond to that but only when we get to a later chapter (laughs) okay uh so my number four is the chase third day uh, both the chase first day and the chase second day kind of got pushed down my rankings by the fact that they're competing with the chase third day, and yeah. I, I didn't want a huge amount. I didn't want to just have chase second day, chase first day, chase third day, which is how I would rank those in ascending order. Um, I think mm-hmm. the second day is probably the weakest. It has some of my some amazing moments. It has. I love the moment where Stubb says, "You know, as fearless fire," and Ahab mutters, "And as mechanical," repeating something that he'd said during the candles. But like Stubb has taken on. Ahab's, you know, you know, declaration that Stubb is, you know, brave as fearless fire, but it is not understood the actual meaning of that, which is that he is also somewhat soulless, mechanical. Yeah. Um, but uh, the chase, that, that's, that's the I, I thing from the second day that he, I wanted to mention. <laughs> yeah, I also think that the moment in the second day where Ahab leans on Starbuck that's, that's and also is like, very good. I have been moved by thee of late, I think that's oh, really God, good. God, I think that's also where he has that line, Ahab's soul's a centipede. 
Is that? Mm, yes, when he was like pumping everyone oh, up. Oh, now I really feel like I I undervalued the second day. Maybe it is better than the first day. I don't know. The chase is so good. Yeah. But um, the chase third day is absolutely obviously the pinnacle of it. It yeah. has. I mean, it's it's literally the climax of the novel. It's the point at which it just stops dead as we have the final confrontation with Moby Dick. It's the chase third day is quite simply the climax of the novel and the culmination of everything. And the fact that it's not the fir- the top chapter in my list is only because this is an amazing book. Yeah, no, I agree. And I, I completely agree with your ranking of the chapters of the chase. Um, I did already say that the 10th on my list was the chase first day. Yep. 11th is the chase second day. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I definitely uh, agree that in ascending order, it goes second day, first day, third day. Yeah, yeah. Because um, uh, the chase third yeah, day well, is still yeah. higher in my rankings. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So what's your third? Uh, so number three for me is chapter 123, the musket. Mm-hmm. Um, There's the Starbuck. Yeah. That's just, the musket is what makes Starbuck for me. Yeah, no, like, it's... It, it, it is, on some level, like, uh, the fact that Starbuck is in certain ways kind of frustrating and conventional for a lot of the novel, mm-hmm. like, reaches its justification in the musket mm. um, for me. Yeah. Um, like, I, I always was, I think, in certain ways a little more sympathetic to Starbuck yeah, than yeah. you. I, but like, I want to be... We'll talk about characters in a bit. Go yeah. on. Sorry. But but uh, but when I reached the musket, I was just like, oh, all right. Like this is what it's all been building. To. Yeah, I like. I actually love this guy. Yeah, <laughs> like that's... he sucks, but I love him. <laughs> yeah, no, that's fair enough. No, and the musket is really good. I, it's. I think the symphony being higher on my list means that I placed the musket lower because yeah, I I have this other set of. Ahab Starbuck interactions. There's also some really good Starbuck in the Chase Third Day. Not just the moment where he last tries to convince Ahab not to go, and they have this moment of actually looking into each other's eyes, and that's so good. But the, also the moment where Starbuck faces death is fantastic. And I think the musket, I mean, obviously that's recapitulating some elements of the musket without all of them. Yeah. Do they do they look into each other's eyes on the third day? I thought it was the second day. I no, thought... it's, it's the on the final day as he sets off. Um, like there, there's the bit where he leans on him in the second day, but on the third day, as he said, it's the line, it's the bit where Ahab says, uh, there are men who die at low tide and men who die at the full of the flood. And I yes. feel like all my life is now one crested comb. Yes, 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 yes. Now I know and what you're looks, talking about. he looks, he like, he tells Stark, it's where we had that disagreement about tears versus tears. Yeah, yeah. That was such an interesting, like, bit Ambiguity. of language. Yeah, yeah no, yeah. no. Yeah. And I'm remembering what you're talking about now. Yeah. It would be interesting, I think, to do a version of this. I don't know if I'm going to bother, because this would be some effort. But uh, because we keep talking about these things in terms of um, specific, like, speeches. Yeah. It would be interesting to do, like, a a bracket of specifically just Ahab speeches. Mm, Yeah, an Ahab speeches bracket would be heady stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Anyways, um, speaking of which, do you want to do, let's go into the the Yeah, what's your number three? Uh, the quarter deck, aka the most, the second most famous, and uh, since it has uh, beaten out uh, the chase of the two most famous, the better of Ahab's like vast speeches. This is the little lower layer. Strike through the mask. I'd strike the sun if it insulted me. We had to put like, uh, we had to put mastodon music behind this one to feel like we were doing it right. Yeah, no, absolutely. The 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 quarter deck, just a fucking stand out yeah um, i agree <laughs> the quarterdeck is uh 
like frankly the fact that it was third was one of the hardest decisions this this top three racked my body and my brain and my soul yeah yeah <laughs> uh, I don't I, think we need to say more about the quarterdeck because we've said so much over the course of the podcast. Yeah, that's fair. Um, well, my number two ranked chapter is 135, The Chase Third Day. Yep, yep, okay. Th- there you go. Talk, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there it is. Uh, my, and here's the shocker. Here's the shocker. My second ranked one, The Lee Shore. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I ended up deciding that as much as, and like, this is the one that killed me, was choosing between first and this, because... Lee Shore may in some sense still be my, like, in terms of amount of chapter of love per length of chapter, the (laughs) chapter that won is a long one. And the chapter, and the Lee Shore is half a page, and I was still like, oh, but there's so much in the Lee Shore. Like, the Lee Shore's this perfect little poetic statement, bulking tin, um, it's where some of my favorite, like, phrases from the book come from, the howling infinite... Um, up from the spray of thy ocean perishing, thy apotheosis. Yeah. Just everything in the Lee Shore is this perfect thing. Uh, greatest things are most unmentionable. The Lee Shore is like this aphoristic communication of some of the deepest, deepest themes in the entire book. And it occurs just after they've set out. It is perfectly placed to set every to be this tonal description of everything. And also... Uh, something I'd love to get to bring up right now is that it's, he describes this, you know, this chapter is the six-inch grave of Bulkington. Mm-hmm. Um, that he, you know, un, that he will have no grave and he'll have no tombstone. And Bulkington is this figure who appears only previously in the inn, where he's like, uh, he's just mentioned as being laconic, not very, doesn't speak a lot, but everyone loves him and he's generally like this brave and impressive figure. And then Ishmael is like, oh wow, he's on the Pequod. And he just arrived, like, last night, because I know, because everyone was hailing him. He hasn't been four days ashore, and he's setting out for another four years on the sea. What kind of man can do that? Yeah. And becomes this figure for, like, the desire of the soul to reach deep, strange knowledge, to be freed from, like, the structures and conventions and, and uh, to some extent, the the smallness and normalcy of everyday life into the howling infinite. Indefinite is God. It's this amazing moment, and Bulkington is, like, mentioned maybe once more in the entire book, and we know that he dies as well upon the, um, upon the Pequod, unless, unless he's the sailor that fell from the rigging and vanished in the life boy. Those are the only two places he could have died, and he is not mentioned. So, uh... First of all, I'm just gonna search in yeah, this yeah. ebook to see if he is in fact mentioned again. Um, no, the last place he's mentioned is in uh, in the Lee Shore. Yep, yep. Um, I. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So he was. Uh, he he did stand at the helm of the Pequod as yeah. They, he's a Pequod sailor. He's not mentioned again, and therefore we know where he died. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's that, you know, that's the spray of his ocean perishing, but up his apotheosis. So that's the Lee Shore. That's half a page and it's that good. So is, doesn't this make Bulkington the, the pilot of the Pequod? Like the one who guides it So out remember, of... uh, yeah, I believe it makes him the pilot at like, at, uh, at Harbor. He is the one guiding it out of, uh, New Bedford or out of Nantucket. But, um... 
It's also the case that uh, we know that, for example, Ishmael often had the helm over the course of the um, over the course of the uh, the sail. So it's entirely possible that Balkington was not normally on the helm. Yeah, I guess I was just thinking, isn't isn't the situation that like a pilot like doesn't stay on the ship? No, or, no, no. We know. Oh that no, 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 no. Wait, yeah, it was. This um, is already after. Yes, they've they... already they've already piloted out, and also there was this whole thing about how uh, Bildad was trained as a pilot for mm-hmm. reasons of uh, um, thrift. Yes. Okay, so yeah, no, never mind. Uh, I got. Confused. Yeah, he's not a harbor pilot. He is a sailor on the ship. Yes, gotcha, yes. gotcha. So yes, Bulkington is a is a Pequod as. They might put it. I don't actually know if that's... A, I, I'm thinking about the thing in, uh, like, the Aubrey Maturin books, mm. uh, where they refer to a member of the crew of a naval vessel as, like, the crew of the Sophie. A blank, yeah. yeah a Sophie. And, 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 like, a Sophie man. No, not even a Sophie man, though. Just, it's just a Sophie. A Sophie. And it's really cute because it means that, like, later on, when... Um, you know, uh, Captain Aubrey is commanding new vessels. He still has a lot of the sailors from his previous mm, And vessels. he'll refer to them as Sophies. Yeah, so, like, he's on the surprise, but he has a lot of old Sophies around. That's cute. Right? That it's, sounds very cute. It's very cute. Sophie, it helps that Sophie's a very cute name. Yes. Uh, okay, so, that's, that's the Lee Shore. Yeah. So, first ranked. Yeah, my number one chapter is chapter thirty six, the quarter deck. Um, I it's almost feel a like classic. I almost feel like a little boring having my top <laughs> two chapters be the chase third day and the quarter deck, which you've already had in your ranking. <laughs> it's sort of oh. like you know, I'm 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 just picking the hits for my top <laughs> ones. Who knows what Ben's choice is for number one? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I'm into the B side. <laughs> it is also an Ahab speech chapter. Uh-huh. Uh It's one we had a lot of fun with. Um, and it is absolutely directly connected to the quarter deck. Yes. Because my top chapter was chapter 119, The Candles. Yeah. Like, if you want the moment where Ahab just steps out of the book and says, by the way, Gnosticism. Yeah, no, I'm, you know what? It makes total sense that you rank The Candles that high. In fact, I bet if I'd been paying attention (laughs) throughout this and had heard that you hadn't mentioned The Candles yet, I probably could have figured out, oh, that's going to be Ben's number one. So... This was really hard between the candles and the Lee Shore because the candles is Ahab's like metaphysical declarations in the face of the storm. It also just the visuals, the like the pageantry of the candles is fantastic. The quarterdeck also, obviously, but the um the utter just devastation and fascination of this moment. Uh, Ahab sort of working through his feelings about God, you know, a personality stands here, or, you know, I own thy speechless, placeless power, um, as a true child of fire, uh, thy true worship is defiance. Yeah. Just everything there is just, it thrills the heart, and it also is, it's stepping even further below, uh, his, you know, speech on the quarter deck when he explains his hatred for the white whale, because now he comes face to face with, and in a sense, if not vanquishes, then is at least able to hold his own against the conceptual, the unbodied, the the storm, the universe. It's the white whale that he chiefly hates and that he cannot defeat, but the storm he can greet as an equal. Yeah. And it's this fascinating moment. It ha- also has, like, 
I think one of my favorite moments in there that's sort of lower key and isn't an Ahab moment is when Starbuck says, you know, are you blind? Can you not see? And Stubb responds, it doesn't matter how foolish I am. None of us can, you, you can't see any better in the dark. And I think that's an important moment for Starbuck and Stubb as well, because Stubb, Starbuck is desperately trying to see his way through these things that he, though, however wise or like at the very least, like, you know, conventionally wise and like uh, conscientious he is he's still as blind as everyone in this darkness, whereas when Ahab and the lightning come, there is a certain visibility. Uh, so, you know, the whole thing is dramatic and gothic, and there's, like, uh, you know, um, St. Elmo's fire and lightning and Ahab grabbing the chain and... Oh. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an incredible chapter. Um, I, it would be interesting... Where did you put candles, by the way? Uh, seven. I already mentioned Oh, it. right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry. Pretty high. Um, yeah, I, I feel like, uh, I want to find out, but it would be a lot of effort to do this by hand, and I don't know how to automate it, but it would be interesting to find out what the biggest difference in ranking is between mm, us. I'll bet it's one of, because there's so many chapters, I'll bet there's like a 30-step difference between two basically okay chapters somewhere down below. Yeah, that's probably the case. Um, <laughs> I'm just curious about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh... Hmm. So I'm curious, do you mind if I ask about a couple chapters? Yeah, I, w- I wanted to do the exact same thing for you. <laughs> okay, so yeah, yeah, yeah go okay. ahead. What are some chapters um, okay, you want to know so where I rank First of them? all, I do want to mention the musket was for me 21, just below the Gilder and the Forge. The Forge I expected to be higher. It's at 18, and it's such a great moment, you know, in, uh, in not... Not in nomine patris, but in nomine diabolis, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, um, non ego. It's 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 Latin. I don't do Latin, but it's but it's really while it's really great, it's kind of just pure spectacle. I don't feel like it. Com- I don't feel like it does any communication of themes that isn't vi- vi- available in more detail and more elaborate language in nearly any other uh, Ahab moment, including the needle, where, you know, Ahab and all his fatal pride. Yeah, I did rank the needle above the forge. Uh, mm-hmm. It was 25 for the needle, 29 for the forge for me. The needle ended up a bit below the forge, but just because I had the candles, which is both of them plus ultra, and <laughs> uh, the forge, I think, just is more exciting than the needles. But also, I think this is where we start getting a little bit of fuzziness in rankings. Yeah, no, definitely. Um <sighs> mm. Where did you put chapter three, the spouter in? Oh, where did I put that? Um, let me just, can I search? Oh, this is inconvenient. I have it saved as a uh, Google mm. Keep note, and I don't seem to have an easy I way. I think just scrolling down is and looking for chapter three. Yeah, I just, I wanted to be able to like just search text. Yeah, you know no, I, mean? I totally but get that. It doesn't look, yeah, that's it. Wow. That's pretty low for me. It's at uh, 70. Yeah, no, I got 15. Wow. I put the spouter in at 15, and I'm like, because what, I went back to it, and I reread it, and it's like, it's got the painting, it's got all these fun little interactions, it's got the, uh, like, the barkeep there, and I just thought there was a ton of, like, really good, I mean, just environment, the setting, the, like, the mise-en-scene, the, like, the, just the clutter of things in there, the introduction of little wailing elements. I just thought it was really good, much better than, um, and I think I, I, the carpet bag, I think I voted very low. Yeah, there's not a lot in the carpet bag. Yeah, and it's, of the opening sequences, Looming's is, 
Loomings is Loomings. It's good. It's the first. It's the first one. Frankly, it should have ended up higher than it did on my list, but it's been so long, and it's just not as exciting after you've seen everything else. Lo- Loomings was number fifteen for me. Mm, um, I yeah, think yeah. Is very good. Um, it is very good. I don't want to say it's not very good. Yeah. Um, I just feel like I it ended up lower than. Surely it ended up. Mm. Also, I feel weird that a bosom friend is down at like fifty-seven for me. A bosom friend is number 14 for me. I just, I remember when I was ranking things, I just kept, it would be like a bosom friend versus something with, you know, a lot of interesting theme in it. Like, say, uh, a bosom friend versus the needle. Or versus the Pequod meets the Rachel. And I'm just like, yeah, but this is the chapter where Ishmael and Queequeg get married. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think that I definitely had a tendency towards the later chapters over the earlier, um, since, uh, Bosom Friend and, uh, uh, Biographical, Nightgown, all of these really charming Queequeg and Ishmael things, I think ended up lower, like, they ended up around the 50s or 40s, which is still in the upper 50% of the book, but is much lower than I would have, like, if I'd just been writing down chap, I, what I would have done if I was just writing down chapters I remember, I would have sort of taken all of them together, chosen one that, like, exemplifies them, and put it up pretty high. Whereas because it's all of, because each of them are together, I'm like, well, it's a pretty good chapter. It's the combination of these three chapters that's really good. What's the chapter that you ranked highest that is below chapter 23, or below, earlier than chapter 23, Lee Shore? Uh, earliest, highest, before 23. Just the highest ranked chapter that is 22 Before they take off, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I, let me, let me just roll down. There's 27. Oh, it's chapter three, the spouter in at 15. Okay. But after that, it takes me until 26, the ship. Yeah. And I, I just like boats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then after that, oh, wow. Takes until 42. You know, this is one of those places where it's weird and fuzzy. I don't know how the pulpit got up this high. Yeah, for me, it's at 14, I have a bosom friend. At 15, I have loomings. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it, there isn't another one of these early chapters for quite a while until yeah, 56, yeah. Mm. chapter four, the counterpane. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's definitely... I have the wheelbarrow at 56, actually, so that's another early chapter. I just really like the bit where Queequeg throws a man in the air and then punches him. That's And then immediately cool, saves yes. someone's life just because he's the coolest dude. <sighs> yeah, like, he is, he is very cool, just, it's true. That is just a straightforward, like... That scene early in the movie where they want to establish that someone is so cool and doesn't care what you think, but is a good person. But it also ends with, we cannibals must help these Christians, which is one of my favorite early statements of that theme and one of its, like, most enjoyable versions. Yeah, so I have a couple questions for you about some some chapters where you put them. Um, I am curious where you put the pipe, chapter 30. Ooh, uh, one second. You like that? Oh, you can fifty. Fifty. Okay. Five zero. It was nineteen for me. Yeah, yeah. I know, I, I I know like how much the, you love the pipe. I do like it a lot. <laughs> Sorry. No comment. Jesus Christ. No, I set myself up for this one. Um, what about uh, fifty-five and fifty-six? The monstrous and less erroneous pictures of oh, whales. Oh, those got those got absolutely dumpstered by the fact that uh, of of whales in paint is so high. Uh, monstrous was sixty-seven and. 
less erroneous may even be lower than that. Oh, man. I When I was ranking this, I did sort of purposefully keep those two together. Aww. I was just sort of like, I think these are basically equivalent, except that I think that Monstrous Pictures of Whales is slightly better. Yeah, Less Erroneous <laughs> was 95. Oh, wow. For me, there were 23 and 24. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I Look, I just feel that they're perfectly good, but kind of pedantic, and uh, there's a lot more going on. Anyways... We should go down to the very bottom of the mm. list. <laughs> let's see our, our bottom, and we don't need to go into too much yeah, detail. Yeah, no, let's, let's just say, like, what's your worst chapter? Chapter 122, Midnight Aloft, Thunder and Lightning. Yeah, that's my last yeah, one. Yeah, it? yeah. It's literally, it's just one, like, sentence, and that sentence is just racist. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's just nothing there, man. Yeah, that one just does not have, like, it's it's a joke. The joke is half racism and half not very good. Yeah. I want to be clear, the racist part is also not very good. I just want to be clear, there's another joke there, and it's also not very good. Uh, also, so my, my other low, really low-ranking ones are The Decanter, The Great Heidelberg Tun, um, The Cassock, The Nut. So there's a number of, like, whale head anatomy ones that I felt are, like, useful in context, but eh. Yeah. And uh, The Decanter in particular, I've said it before and I'll say it again, it is a nothing chapter that just doesn't do anything for me um oh oh uh chapter 25 postscript really did not need to be a separate chapter yeah no i i agree uh, queen mab chapter 31 got yeah. real real low as well everything you've mentioned is pretty low on my ranking except where's queen mab because i don't feel like i ranked that very high either but i'm not seeing it um oh no that's yeah that's fairly low but uh, significantly higher than a lot of these yeah other ones, yeah actually weirdly uh, enough I think going aboard is, I have it at 124, I think you, uh, looking over, I saw it at 136 for me, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um. Oh, here's a question. Where did you put the, uh, front matter and excerpts? Where did I put the front matter and excerpts? I need to find where I put it as well. Uh, 71 for me, which One, feels low. 119. Damn! Yeah, no, I mean, as much as I enjoy the sub-sub, um, it's just not... There's not a lot uh, of narrative Yeah, there. it's there's not a lot of narrative, and also, thematically, it's, like, frankly, I think the excerpts are honestly kind of ridiculous. Like, so many of them are just, and then they mentioned a whale in this book. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sim although, I will say, Looming's being at 119 is clearly a mistake on my part, and I don't know how the system produced that. Yeah. <sighs> Hmm. What's a what's another like weird one that got so uh midnight the foxhole borgs or no not that one which, which I no not the foxhole borgs sorry I'm thinking of there's the one that's like twenty or something which is like uh it's like a play with a bunch of different uh yeah, yeah, characters yeah. that one got pretty far down for me but I'm not sure where oh another nothing chapter hark yeah very very little in hark I agree. <sighs> God, then there's the cassock, which is 100% dick jokes. I feel like there's slightly more going on in there, but... That's but fair. No, I mean, you're not wrong, but <laughs> a lot of what's going on there is just like, man, here's a really bizarre thing with a whale penis. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the deck towards the end of the first watch. No, no, that's a different one as well. Damn it. There's, there's so many that are just like, place on ship, time of night. Yeah. That's the least helpful naming convention in this. I book. mean, what is the what is the general um, like beyond it being like the the title being a time and it being kind of a play? Midnight Foxhole, maybe chapter forty. This that's the one where it's uh, like the sailors having a party. Yeah, yeah. 
What were, yeah. you, what were you thinking about that chapter? Oh, I was just trying to figure out where I'd put it, and I was wondering where you'd put it. I put it 76. Oh, uh, hmm. For me, it's 60. Mm. Uh, so yeah, yeah pretty so, similar. Yeah, pretty similar, pretty mid. Uh, hmm. Okay, where'd you put fast fish and loose fish? I was number 40 for me. Mm, 51. So, yeah, I think we're running out of interesting dis- yeah, distinctions. Yeah, the... I, I think we should stop talking about the rankings at this point. But um, it was a ton of fun to put these together. Mm. Um, I hope other people also enjoy doing it. Yeah, and it definitely, one thing I really appreciate about it is it definitely brought up not necessarily chapters that got into my top 10, but chapters that were just really good that were somewhere in the 60s or 70s that I wouldn't necessarily have thought a lot about. Like A Bower in the Arsacides was a really lovely chapter to revisit and think about a bit. Or, um, you know, it has its problems, but it's got some just really beautiful language. Or, um, you know, just going back and reading a bunch of the early uh, Queequeg and... Uh, and Ishmael lying around in bed chapters were really charming. Yeah, no, I agree. I think this was a fun way to kind of revisit the book. Yeah. Uh, <sighs> now, oh. speaking of speaking of fun ways to revisit the book, oh, I want to do the completion uh, oh, right, right. Uh, quiz. Well, while you're pulling that up, uh, I would like to briefly mention a few things that I've noted down that I wanted to mention. Uh, one of which is that I mistook, uh, epigraph and epigram in a previous episode. Oh, this is the kind of, cause I was about to be like, Ben, I want to do this thing no, now. No, no, Why no, are you bringing up thematic points? But no, no you no, mean these... like, you're, you're, you're being an um, ombudsman right now. Sure. Sure. You can accuse me of that. Um, <laughs> but no, uh, an epigraph is the written form. An epigram can be on anything else, but if it's an epi- if it's in a book, it's an epigraph. So the epilogue has an epigraph, not an epigram, I think. You might want to look that one up because I'm real. Oh bad. my god! Do not just <laughs> you, Ben. Did you not look it up? I did, but like not. You didn't literally write down. You looked it up, but me. you didn't write it down. I thought I wrote it down, but what I wrote down is epigraph circled, not epigram <laughs> underlined. Okay, uh, an epigram is a pithy saying or remark expressing an idea in a clever or amusing way, which is definitely not what that joke. No, and then is. an epigraph is. An inscription on a building statue or coin, or a short quotation or saying at the beginning of a book or chapter intended to suggest its theme. So yes, it is epigraph, not epigram. Okay. And hopefully I will never forget that again, because it was embarrassing to realize. Another minor thing is that, uh, unbeknownst to all of you, I have been wearing, in nearly all recordings, my Lucky Whale shirt. Oh, yes. Right. Also, Mark didn't notice that I was wearing the same shirt for most recordings until I pointed it out on the last episode. Yeah, you were like, oh, I need to wear my Lucky Whale shirt. And I was like, have you been doing that this whole time? (laughs) The answer is yes. And not only is it a shirt with a whale on it, it's specifically a Hitchhiker's Guide to the uh, Galaxy reference. It's a whale falling from a great height towards a potted plant. Well, no, it's it's just falling from a great height with clouds around on the front, say, with a little speech bubble that says, I hope it will be friends with me. And on the back of the shirt is a single falling potted plant. Right. And it's like a light blue with white, uh, you know, print-ons. It, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a nice cute, shirt. It's a cute it's, shirt. It's well-designed. It is I've owned also... it for so long. It's getting worn out a bit. But it's great for podcasting about whales in. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Anyways, that's my lucky whale shirt, and I thought you should all know. Um, have you got the uh, quiz ready? I do ready? have the quiz ready, yes. Okay, I can get to any other things like this later. Okay. So yeah, I'm going to, I'm clicking the link that says, Reader, if you would like a certificate of completion for this book, please click here. So I'm clicking here. Have you just completed Moby Dick? 
Finishing Moby Dick for the first time is kind of a big deal. If you have just done so, congratulations. I wish I could give you a hug, or at least shake your hand, but on the internet, these things are not possible. What I can do is give you a certificate of completion to print out. It's not much, but it's something. Below is a short quiz. It should be easy for anyone who has read the book. Follow the instructions if you want to get the certificate. Good luck and thanks for visiting this site. Margaret Guroff, editor and publisher, Power Moby Dick. She made this for us. Yeah. She wanted to give us a hug and she couldn't, so she gave us a quiz. Oh, that's the most Moby Dick thing you could possibly do. All right. Uh, I'm not going to read the whole quiz aloud because I don't want uh, any cheaters. <laughs> um, you, how about you could read the questions but not the answers? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, uh, okay, and... Uh, it, oh, this is also cute. If you get all 11 questions right, three things will happen. This page will turn blue-green, a password will appear at the bottom of the page, and your computer will be instructed to open a password-protected PDF. <sighs> I, I love that this is that this has the security element of making you take a quiz to prove that you actually read the book, and then making you fill in a password. But at the same time, it's like, literally, I think anybody could pirate this pdf if they wanted to <laughs> yeah also you can just you could theoretically just brute force this quiz yeah I, but like don't do that yeah Come no of on. course i wouldn't that would be that not would, you i'm in a reader yeah no that, that would be disgusting behavior respect margaret Guroff. she also nothing but respect for my margaret Guroff. uh she also says um that if there's a problem you should email her uh at meg <laughs> at powermobydick.com uh, so... And we'll figure it out. Yes, if you Meg have... Meg is a very calming person, I think. Yeah, no, I, I have immense respect for Margaret Guroff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or I've... Meg Guroff, as maybe we're gonna call her now. I have occasionally disagreed with... Meg, can I call her Meg? Meg's, uh... <laughs> Sorry, that was a dumb joke. Uh, with Meg's, um... Uh, annotations, but I certainly do not disagree with the project as a whole, which is wonderful. Yes. Alright. So here's the quiz. Question one... Where did the Pequod's voyage originate from? Uh, question two, what happens to Pip the cabin boy? Oh, now this, this I think is actually controversial. <laughs> <laughs> I, also, I think you may have gotten the first one wrong. I'm like, no, I think. He, doesn't oh, he travel mm, from one to the other? Okay. Um, well, we're, we're having some disagreement over where the Pequod's voyage originated from. And I guess we do need to get all 11 questions right to get the thing, huh? Um, all right, maybe we should <laughs> double check. Oh, that feels so embarrassing. Yeah, I mean, but, well, it's been a long time. We've been reading this very slowly. That's true. Uh, uh, but I will point out chapter 14. Yeah, no, you're right. you're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. I was confused. It's a very understandable confusion. It's a tricky question. Mm -hmm. Only true Moby Dickheads will, uh... <laughs> Sorry, I said Oh my god! Also, question three, what is Fidala's religion? I mean, there is an answer to this, but, but it's also, ooh, like, big question. Uh, what did Ahab mailed, nail to the mainmast? Why did Ishmael tie himself to Queequeg? For a second, I thought this was asking, Why, why did, did they Ish get married? Why did Ishmael attach his entire life to Queequeg? <laughs> and I was like, again, big question. But no, it's talking about um, the monkey rope. Mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> what is a blanket piece? What was the ship the Rachel looking for? Where is Spermaceti found? What uh. does the carpenter build for Queequeg? 
Who tries to talk Ahab into giving up the hunt for Moby Dick? Do you solemnly mm-hmm. vow that you have really and truly read Moby Dick? Aww. Yes. Process questions. Hey, the page turned blue-green! Oh. All right, we passed. We got the password. Oh. Hold up. <laughs> wow, I'm really stupid. I'll edit that out. Oh, that's really cute. Oh, you can type your name in? Oh, I forgot to type my name in on the previous page? How does this work? No, I think it's supposed to be an editable PDF. Oh, all right. So you'll want to do this on... I'll have to do this on my on my laptop, yes, instead of on my yes. uh, my. But anyways, iPad. congratulations, Mark. <sighs> you Congratu- passed Moby Dick. <laughs> congratulations to you two. <laughs> I know I was the one who clicked the buttons, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah. We have both... Uh, we can both certify that we have completed Moby Dick. Yes. <sighs> okay, okay. Uh, what else did we want to deal with? Oh, there was a thing that came up one time when we were looking up Scrimshaw after an episode that I really wanted to share. This is just, again, my miscellany of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is that there... Which is something that I can't believe wasn't in the book because it's so good. Which is a um, famous piece of Scrimshaw that with the amazing inscription... Death to the living, long life to the killers. Yeah, I think that I might have actually posted a picture of this when mm. we did pictures of oh, whales. Oh, it's entirely possible. I just wanted a chance to say, death to the living, long life to the killers, on uh, on, on the episode. Yeah, let me let me see if I can find, because this is, the situation here is that there is a specific, like, uh, I think it's like a, a specific, like, scrimshaw um, having... Uh, like there's, there's uh, according like so- to um, a random webpage I just opened, the most famous scrimshander, which is one who Yeah, Frederick scrimshaw. Myrick, the specific guy who engraved this on a lot of tooths. Yep. Teeth, surely. <laughs> yes! The word is back teeth! <laughs> oh my god! Uh, but yeah, um, he is known to have carved the, uh, the motif... Uh, death to the living, long life to the killers. Uh, Success to sailors' wives and greasy luck to whalers. Amazing, amazing. Yeah, he, Anyways, he, I just want a death metal song that chants that. Yeah, the, the picture of this that I posted in the... It's almost at the end of the post about uh, pictures of whales. is a picture of something called Susan's Tooth, mm-hmm. which was scrimshawed? Engraved by Frederick... <laughs> By Frederick Myrick in 1829. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, uh, a famous... Uh, or uh, a, according to uh, one Stuart Frank, uh, writing for the um, uh, Frederick Myrick of Nantucket Scrimshaw Catalog, Raison, um, he is undoubtedly the most famous Scrimshaw artist. His work will likely always remain a cornerstone of any Scrimshaw collection. Cool. And, you know, it's, it's, it's quite detailed. It's always funny to me because... I always think of Scrimshaw in terms of, like, like almost a bas-relief, like, you know, uh, like three-dimensional shapes, but it's really, no, it's, it's an engraving. It's a, it's a pattern of, of black lines on the white tooth. Yeah. Um, uh, so, yeah, we did post a Myrick. <sighs> if anyone has a Myrick, they would like to um, uh, have shown on, I mean, I can't, we can't really show it, but if anyone has a Myrick, which you won't because they're wildly expensive and super rare, uh, please feel free to send it to us for free. Thank you. <laughs> uh, we can promise you good luck in whaling if you do that. 
Yes, but also please don't do whaling. (laughs) (sighs) Greasy luck to whalers is a great phrase also. I'm never wishing someone greasy luck. Dear Lord. (laughs) That's awful. Ah, okay, okay. So that's the that's the scrimshaw thing that I just wanted to get a chance to say on air. Sure, sure, sure. As you can tell, I'm being extremely self-indulgent this episode, as if I'm not that every episode. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if there's any more, uh, like, uh, any more, like, stuff on PowerMobyDick.com. I don't know, but... Uh, I don't know, but, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's just, like sources used Mm, oh we do have maybe we should uh briefly plug uh the book that shows up in the sidebar often which is uh there's a history of the fact of the bicycle by meg yes yes she wrote a book called the mechanical horse um and i just wanted to you know point that out because we've relied so much on meg's hard work yeah yeah uh, the sidebar does refer to it as a new book and now i'm looking to see yes it came out in 2016 oh okay so, new-ish. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, I think this book is like a pro-bicycle polemic, which I'm all for. <laughs> yeah, I I would not be surprised, nor would I be surprised that you would like a pro-bicycle polemic. <laughs> I'm also pro-bicycle. Maybe not as much as you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so there are some things I just wanted to chat about briefly, which is, uh, I thought we'd do a little bit of a rundown of characters. Yeah. Like, there's a lot of characters in the book. Uh, and I was thinking we could at least, you know, not spending a long time on them, especially since some of them, such as Ishmael and uh, Ahab, we spent a lot of time on. But just, you know, going back over that, especially with this the, the, the view of hindsight, like Starbuck, I think, would be a great place to start. Because like you said, Starbuck at the musket, sort of all of this build up comes to this head. Yeah. And I really do think he's a character that is present from early in the book and is important from early in the book, but is really so much more prominent and, like, interesting in these last chapters as everything comes closer. Yeah, I think you're really right about Starbuck kind of uh, taking on different roles, or or, uh, Starbuck's role becoming more, like, significant and central towards Mm -hmm. the end of the novel. Um, Yeah. I think that he, um... I mean, on some level, he's consistently the counterpoint to Ahab, and even Ahab, I think, becomes not more central, since he's central from very early on, but more, like, visible and outspoken as the book goes on. And so, basically, I feel like Starbuck, except for a few moments, is only ever reacting to Ahab. Like, Ahab gives his speech, Starbuck reacts to it. Ahab, you know, sails out with his new crew that he's been hiding, Starbuck reacts to it. And this continues up until, I mean, basically the musket, and around then where uh, Starbuck starts trying more proactively to convince him away from his course of action, but also considers shooting him. Right. (sighs) Uh, So, yeah, I I don't know. I don't actually know that there's a... a, We've said a lot about Starbuck is the thing. Yeah, I... I think we really have, like, kind of, as we've read the chapters that are, like, relevant to his development, we've talked yeah. about that a lot. Um, but yeah, I I will also point out, if we look back, that uh, something I noticed in Knights and Squires first, because remember, there's two chapters, one after the other, both named Knights and Squires with no actual distinction in the book between mm-hmm. the 
Of it's course. Very silly. Um, but the first Knights and Squires ends with this discussion of the idea of the kingly commons, that God chooses out from the common people his, like, greatest champions. And also, uh, Starbuck is the person being discussed in that chapter. So there's this interesting thing where Starbuck is kind of supposed to be the God-ordained best of normal people, of, of standard society, of conventional life. Whereas Ahab is something other than that. He is his imperial brain. He is, you know, one of the divine inert. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think that, like... I, I, I think that on some level, um, what's going on with Starbuck is that there is a sort of, like full demonstration out to like in the musket or possibly in the symphony like the greatest possible extent of what a conventionally admirable mm-hmm. and like heroic and like um you know moral person yeah. a can, paragon of Nantucket manhood yeah can do about the kind of things Ahab's dealing with. Yeah, about this, about the Pequod, about Ahab, about, like, the problems that Ahab is grappling with. About Moby Dick. Yes. And, like, fundamentally, uh, you know, Starbuck is not able to respond to Ahab or to Moby Dick mm-hmm. in a way that um, gets, you know, what Starbuck wants. Um... But then at the same time, I feel like it could easily be said that, like, Ahab's response to Moby Dick is also insufficient, right? That, like, Ahab also does not achieve success. Yeah, I mean, on some level, you can't actually kill God with a sharp stick. No, no, you really cannot. Um, Uh, The world continues to be the thing that Ahab is angry at. Uh, And in fact, his attempts to take some kind of revenge lead to his utter destruction, all destroying but unconquering. Yeah. And and I do think that there is a certain sense in which, like, if Starbuck were willing to step outside of his world and, like, enter Ahab's, like, enter Ahab's world of uh, witnessing dark truths and, like, uh, being outside of, like, normal humanity. Outside his gnosis. Of, yeah, but but I also mean, like, his madness, right? Yeah. Um, and, and his, like, blasphemy. And I think there is a certain sense in which, certainly in the musket, like, if Starbuck were willing to accept something like that, some kind of corruption like that happening to him, that he would, maybe would be able to oppose Ahab. Um, uh, you mean in terms of disobeying the fundamental order of the ship? The way it's yes. organized. Yes. Um, to be a murderer. Yes. And, and like, uh, like, I, I, I think on some level with Starbuck and Ahab and the dynamic between them and, like, Starbuck's character, the book is kind of saying that, like, the only, uh, not necessarily the only functional response, because, I again, I don't think this is really about results, but, like, the only kind of true response i guess to the world is something like ahab's yeah i mean i think also we should consider ishmael as a third element here where ishmael is capable of accepting and absorbing all of these things that occur and speaking of them 
uh, but he's not capable of acting on them. He's merely like he's he's drawn along, but he does not condemn it the way you know Starbuck condemns Ahab. Nor does he is he driven against it the way Ahab is. Ishmael is passive, like he's very passive. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I think in terms of people's response to like the sort of like the evil in the world and to like Moby Dick and what he represents. I think we, we do see like a range of those responses from yeah, the yeah. text. Ishmael is relevant. I think Pip is also relevant. Yeah. Um, I, uh, just, I don't think that having come to the end, while I am certainly more or less in Ahab's camp for this narrative, I, I thrilled the thought of the destruction of the white whale. Um, I don't think that the book is entirely 100% just like, yes, Abraxas, Gnosticism, fight God. Yeah. I think it's I think it's at least interested in that. At least it's willing to countenance that. I don't think that's what I was trying to say. Okay. More that like it's less that the book is like, yes, the only like correct response to the existence of like evil in the world is to like want to fight God as Ahab does. But more like the only appropriate response to the existence of evil in the world and like the kind of unknowability of the universe is some kind of irrationality, some kind of uh, like the, the, that basically, um, you know, like horrors that would drive anyone mad are just existing in the world at all times. Swimming and, around even. Yes. And, and lighting our lamps and like that most people like Starbuck, basically ignore them. Um, or treat them, in his case, as just a part of the world that you can kill for oil, but does not... It's a, a, a dumb beast, a brute, a thing that does not have qualities you really need to grapple with, except as, like, you know, like a rock or a piece of uh, driftwood. Yes, and we do see Starbuck at multiple times, like, just kind of actively reject like, awareness of some of the deeper and darker things in the world. Like, mm -hmm. that's in the Gilder, right? Yeah. Um, and whatever you could say about Ishmael's kind of range of action, like, I think it's true that Ishmael is a certain sense a very passive character. Mm -hmm. um, and he certainly, he is pursuing Ahab's uh, quest because he has, like, been joined with the crew. Um, but I don't think that he has his own, his kind of... Um, I mean, you know, the whiteness of the whale is his attempt to explain what his particular feelings about Moby Dick are, and it's very confused. Yeah, he's, uh, he's a witness, and he's much more interested in the perception and the seeing than in, you know, the act he intends. But at the same time, I definitely think that Ishmael has, like, an orientation towards reality mm -hmm. that is askew, you know? Like, I think Ishmael yeah, has a kind of madness to him. Ishmael is uh, sunk in Plato's honey head, to use his own metaphor. Ishmael is occasionally drowning in abstraction and pantheism. He is capable of absorbing all this stuff in part because he has this sort of, not even stoic, just like detached uh, approach to it. I think that's an important part of him. Yeah, yeah, I see that. <sighs> well... Uh, I do also want to mention, because while I was looking into the list of uh, cast, um, so fun, So, how many crew members are there on the Pequot? I feel like about 30 is a number that we heard yeah, cited. Yeah, yeah, we hear it repeatedly. If you look at the list of names and nationalities, there are 44 separate crew members. <laughs> <laughs> this is the funniest thing in the world to me. That is very funny, honestly. Like... <laughs> Melville's doing a shell game with us. 
Uh, he has, uh, yeah, so, uh, at least according to Wikipedia, and I see no reason to disbelieve it, although in fact 44 members of the crew are mentioned, in the final chapters Melville writes three times that there are 30 crew members. Wow. That's very funny. So, yeah, um, about 14 crew members don't count, I guess. Clearly he was not thinking about it in this way and was just literally, like, every time he needed a new sailor, He like, thought of some island that he wanted to reference. Yeah, exactly. Um, remember Kabako and Archie? Yeah, yeah, in Hark. Yes. Yep. Remember the Sicilian sailor specifically mentioned who, uh, tries to warn Ahab about the hawk going for his hat? Yeah, yeah. God. Uh, yeah, no, there's, there's sailors from all over, all these isolados, and then there's the named sailors, and the end result is that the Pequod is weirdly overstuffed. Yeah, I suppose that's true. Um, it's it's wonderful. I love it. I love this weird little inconsistency. It does not matter even a little. <sighs> so yeah, that's uh that's the um that's the situation with the the general sailors. I don't think we really need to They are they're constantly like not even a Greek chorus. They're just the background. They're the the figurants, the actors who don't have speaking roles for the most part. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's a fair way of thinking about mm -hmm. most of them. Uh, so, uh, the other mates, there's uh, Stubb. I like Stubb. He's an asshole. I like Stubb. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, Stubb, Stubb's fun to have in the narrative, for sure. Um, <sighs> I really enjoy on Wikipedia the mention that scholarly portrayals range from that of an optimistic simpleton to a paragon of lived philosophic wisdom. And... Oh boy, is that a sentence. Yeah, yeah, it will definitely be interesting to see how, like, uh, adaptations, uh, you know, interact with these characters and how they portray yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. Um, I gotta say, the point at which I was like, okay, I think while Stubb might be expressing some philosophical points I agree with, the bit where he takes off all his clothes when he's about to die is very funny. <laughs> yeah. I definitely can, like, see in my future being really annoyed at portrayals of starbuck that like just uh, <laughs> think he's like actually like a good the and admirable person yeah and it's like no you're missing like the the tragedy at the core of his soul oh <laughs> uh, yeah no um look we're gonna have opinions about all these adaptations yeah no i i look forward to those a lot um oh god we this reminds me that we are on a quest right now to find any sort of recording of the 2019 musical Moby Dick, a musical reckoning. Yes, it, it was. It was put on at the uh, American Repertory American Repertory Theater, Theater I believe. Repertory. Yes, and um, we have we've been reaching out via every channel we can to try and get some like rough cut or something or you know uh, circulate the tapes. Uh, some way of some way of viewing it because it seems like a really interesting recent thing. Super over the top. They had a splash zone. They wheeled uh, audience members around in the in little rowboats for the whaleboat scenes. Yeah, the stage All... itself is like the prow of the Pequod. Yeah, they built like a giant pseudo Pequod. Um, there's a famous 30-minute spoken word piece about and or by Pip. Yeah. Which... I don't even know how to begin to appreciate that, um, so I, I need to see it. I, yeah, I, I would really, truly love to watch the, a recording of this musical or listen to it, um, but our attempts to reach out 
to either people who might have these recordings or directly to the ART have not been successful. Um, So I I guess I'm just putting out this call. (laughs) If you are someone who knows anything about musical theater bootlegs or has any kind of connections to the American Repertory Theater, which I don't think is too likely that... Listen, <laughs> let's let's allow our re- our readerships or our listenership the sort of general sense that we trust them and we hope that maybe one of them has these connections. If so, we'd really appreciate it. It's like four hours long. It's the most over-the-top description of a musical I've ever heard. And apparently it's entirely like text culled from the book rather than like rewritten to make it into music. So that's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, it's mostly that, like, I'm thinking about it and I'm realizing, like, not that neither of us has connections, neither of us has pull, but, like, I would be surprised if one of our readers had a closer, like, personal relationship with the ART than one of us does, right? Yeah, I Um, guess. I just... I feel like we can just put it out there, and if it's it's not likely, but it might happen. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Anyways, we were talking about characters. Oh, I'm sorry, yes. <laughs> you were just overcome by a lust for Moby Dick, a musical reckoning. Well, I was thinking about, we were talking about adaptations, and yeah, how they might yeah. interpret the characters. And sure, that's... <laughs> but like, I don't think we can even begin to guess how that interprets the characters, because it's everything about it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Anyways, um... But yeah, Stubb. Stubb's going to be interesting uh, to see an adaptation. I think Stubb is interesting in general. He is the representative of Joker mode. What? That you said it first. Yeah, no. Yep, yep. Uh, Flask is sort of a lesser Stubb. I guess that's true. Um... Like, Flask is even... Like, Stubb is the one called Brave as Fearless Fire and as Mechanical, and Flask is even more mechanical than Stubb. Yeah, no, that's that's definitely true. Like, on some level, I think Flask exists to be, like, a comic foil to Stubb. Mm-hmm. Right? Um. <sighs> yeah, the the third mate is often fun, but not really... He's a much more minor character than even Stubb, and certainly a more minor character than Starbuck. In fact, on the Wikipedia page, you can see how Starbuck gets this whole, like, extended paragraph, Stubb gets half the length, and Flask gets, like, three sentences. Oh, <laughs> I mean, yeah, no, it, it reflects the reality of the book for sure. Yep, for sure. Yep. Uh, mm. Just running through this, you know, a number of minor characters on the Pequod who really don't show up a lot. There's the chef, there's uh, the blacksmith who gets his own like couple chapters. Obviously, there's the carpenter who is kind of demiurgic and fascinating. Uh-huh. Uh, he shows up a few more times towards the end there as well. I really like how the carpenter and the blacksmith sort of show up together towards the end as the Gnostic themes are exploding out around the candles. Um, there's uh, Doughboy, the steward, who is only there as a comic figure uh, to get menaced by people and have nerves. That, that's about it. Uh, yeah, there's, you know, a number of named specific sailors. I think of them the Manxmen. Not really named. There's a number of placed specific sailors, because <laughs> they're uh, they're just titled by their origin. The Manxman has a bit of a presence, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He shows up anytime we need someone to, like, say something about, like, uh, superstitions. Superstitions, yeah, yeah, yeah. And remember what the symbol for Leo looks like? Yeah. That we all forgot? Oh my god, that was so embarrassing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, there's, obviously there's Pip. Pip's a whole thing. <sighs> I think, honestly, uh, let's, let's leave Pip aside for the moment, at least. Um, so, 
you know, and there's the Harpeneers, who, again, I think with basically all the non-white characters are a category that is worth talking about, but is not going to go quickly. Yeah. <laughs> there's a lot going on there. I mean, honestly, we've talked a lot about it, but I do want to talk more about Queequeg, Ishmael, who is white, but those two go together. Um, you know, clearly we're eventually going to have to talk at least a little about Ahab. <laughs> yeah yeah the, the joke being we've talked about nothing but ahab for literally hours upon hours at this point yeah i i think maybe let's um let's let's pause for now yeah and get, get back to character discussion later yep um next recording session we'll do character discussion and those questions yeah from a break um so we are i believe previously we were discussing starbuck and all things starbuckular yeah and we were kind of just uh i don't know ranging through like character discussion of the book in general i guess Um, yes and uh i believe we touched on how uh melville claims there are 30 people on the peckwad (laughs) right (laughs) and in actuality there are 44 based on names Mm mm-hmm it's entirely possible we'll be keeping that bit in, which I'm very, I will be happy with. But otherwise, I just want to make sure that information was out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm perfectly happy looking the fool who has uh, repeated things. Just make sure our audience gets that crucial information. <laughs> yeah. Um, as far as, like, characters who are, are, like, interesting to talk about, um, I don't feel like we've really said anything about Queequeg. No, uh, I, we were sort of going through the mates, and then there was potentially going to spill off into other places. So yeah, I'm happy to do the Harpeneers, of which Queequeg is, of course, the, the most prominent. He's the Starbuck of the Harpeneers. Yeah, I don't, I don't think the other... And I he's mean, in Starbuck's boat, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, he is. Yeah. Yeah, the other two Harpeneers, I mean, they are, like, interesting as figures in the narrative to some extent, but... Um, They're not characters to the same degree as Queequeg, no. Yeah, um, and even Queequeg, like... It is a little disappointing how he's, like, so present in the very beginning of the narrative, and then he kind of, like, fades, fades away. out. Yeah, no, yeah. he absolutely does fade out. But frankly, I think Ishmael fades out at almost the same rate as him, and only to recur at the very end. But, like, Ishmael is less and less present as a character talking about himself over the course of the narrative. That's true. That's true. There is this sort of sense that, like, once they get on the Pequod, like, they're their individual perspectives are kind of, like, subsumed into existence on the Pequod. It's true, but even just, um, here, I'm, I'm going to pull up uh, Power Moby Dick again because I want to look at the list of nar- of chapters, but even uh, even on the Pequod, Queequeg is much more present, like, up through the monkey rope, up through the map maker. There's all these sequences that have Ishmael and Queequeg both on the ship and dealing with them that really come to their close with Queequeg in his coffin. Yes. And that's, that's like 110? 110? 110! Bullseye! 
Good for you. Yeah. Um, yeah. Queequeg in his coffin, definitely a very interesting chapter. And, you know, also very sad that after all of that, yeah. the man ended up drowned after all. Yeah. I mean, look, he said in that chapter that a man with a vital spirit cannot be killed by illness or simple water, but only by something massive like, you know, a storm or an act of God. Yeah. So, yeah. that happened. Anyways, uh, but yeah, after that, like, mm, Ishmael appears in the Pacific, in that his perspective on the Pacific is given. And I, but I don't think he really, as an individual, he doesn't have much presence in the candles. The Harpooners do. I won't say Queequeg does as an individual, but the Harpooners do in the candles. But I really don't think, it's really just the mates, Fidala and Ahab, and Pip over towards that period, the towards the end of the book, yeah. Yeah, um, it, I definitely think it's it's very striking how um, significant Pip becomes. Like, yes, I Pip... would definitely not have assumed that from, like, the early scene of, like, the, the party after um, the quarter deck. Oh, yeah, no, in fact, I, I think I mentioned, uh, careful listeners may have noticed, that I mentioned in, um, I believe that would be uh, Merry Christmas which is the chapter before the Lee Shore, uh, but no, Merry Christmas, chapter 22. At the very end of it, Pip gets a weird amount of focus. No, not not that one. Sorry, I mistook it. It's the one that ends with the Isolados. Uh... Would that be Knights and Squires too? Yes, I think so. Yeah. One second, one second, one second. Where is that? 27 or so? Yes, 27. Knights and Squires, the second. Knights and Squires Jr. It's slightly younger, <laughs> presumably. Uh... Yes. Um, uh, when sent for to the great quarterdeck on high, he was bid strike in with angels and beat his tambourine in glory. Called a coward here, hailed a hero there. So yes, Pip gets specifically called out at 27, so less than a quarter of the way through the novel, and then is basically non-existent until the castaway. Yeah, like, it's it's clear that there's going to be something about Pip from that whole uh, named a coward here, hailed here I mean, or there, but... you say that, but this gives me a great chance to discuss Elijah. That's true, yeah, Every Elijah... single thing Elijah mentions is completely irrelevant. Like, the only okay, thing wait. Elijah gestures at is the existence of Fidala. Everything else... We can go back now. We should go Chapter back Chapter 19, now. The Prophet. Yeah, you know, that's a that's a good thing to do, is to, to look at the, the what he actually pro- the prophecies. The web of prophecy and, uh, you know... Um, with this, the uh, web of thro- prophecy is severed, and we persist in the doomed world we have created. I haven't even <sighs> played that game. Okay, so, um... Ah, uh, but yes, he talks about, um... I mean, mostly what he does is says, like, Captain Ahab is, like, scarier than you know. Yes. Um, and uh, that, I mean, that's true. But he also says, uh, but nothing about that thing that happened to him off Cape Horn long ago when he lay, like, dead for three days and nights. So that's... The loss of his leg. But nothing about that deadly scrimmage when the Spaniard afore, with the Spaniard afore the altar in Santa? Noth- heard nothing about that, eh? Nothing about the silver calabash he spat into? And nothing about his losing his leg last voyage, according to the prophecy? So there was a prophecy that he would be dismembered, and Ahab himself references this when he says, Ah, oh, there's a prophecy that I would be dismembered, but now I prophecy that I shall dismember my dismemberer. I believe that's in Sunset. So that's something that going over the chapters to do the ranking really made me aware of, which is while many of these prophecies never come up again and are completely hidden within the book, some of them are repeatedly referenced such that we can tell that they're there, but Ishmael never learned any information about them, apparently. 
So I think that's all wild. You know? Yeah, no, I agree. I was just trying to look and see if I could find anything about this uh, prophecy that... That That he would be dismembered? Yeah. Definitely in Sunset, I think. But Elijah doesn't mention any other... um, uh, He does say, you know... um, uh, now, this circumstance, coupled with his ambiguous, half-hinting, half-revealing, shrouded sort of talk, now begat in me all kinds of vague wonderments and half-apprehensions, and all connected with the Pequod, and Captain Ahab, and the leg he had lost, and the Cape Horn fit, and the Silver Calabash, and what Captain Peleg had said of him when I left the ship the day previous, and the prediction of the Squaw Tistig, which is a weird, um... Oh, apparently, uh, Tistig is the gay header who predicted that Ahab's name would prove prophetic. Uh, so, you know, that he's a b- evil king who will lose, basically. So I guess that is a meaningful bit of prophecy going forward. But uh, the Silver Calabash is completely hidden. And also, I'm realizing, is Cape Horn the same as the Cape of Good Hope? I should know this, and I don't. I, I don't think they are the same. And No, I... Cape Horn is Chile, which means that he had a three-day fit that doesn't show up in the book at all. Yeah, no, that's true. That's like the same kind of thing as the Silver Calabash, where it's just alluded to, but we don't know this story, unlike yeah. the story of him losing his leg, which yeah. is different. Or the Spaniard before the altar in Santa. So there's this idea that, like, Ahab has been at some kind of you know, series of events that are prof- prophesied or are worth being talked about in cryptic tones that we just never get to see. Yeah, yeah. Anyways. Yeah, the funny thing is that the first uh, thing we hear about... Um, like, the dark meaning of Ahab's name is from Peleg, when he's theoretically speaking trying to reassure... Yeah, he's like, uh, oh, just because he has that name, ignore that, ignore that. Yeah, just because there's a dark prophecy about his name, don't worry about that. And it smells like, uh... <laughs> dark I, prophecy? I see. I'm sorry, um... <laughs> please go on. <laughs> yeah, so, so that's Elijah as a character. He really doesn't do anything. Like, he... He slightly frustrates uh, Ishmael and Queequeg, but they mostly blow him off, and he doesn't actually prophesy how it's all going to turn out, except for that connection to Tishtig. Like, there's no actual thing going on there. Yeah, I... Certainly, um... Fidala is a much more, like, detailed prophet. Yes, and much more, like, actually involved in the events of the story, in terms of, like, what he prophesies and also what he does. So, yeah, there's like a, there's almost a handing of the baton of prophecy, but it takes half the book to come into effect. (laughs) If not more, since the only time we really hear about the prophecy is right near the end. This is actually leads me to a, a general theory of the structure of Moby Dick. Sure. I don't think this is the only general theory. There's various things going on here. But a major part of it is that entire arcs and novels occur at sections of the book and then dismiss themselves before the end or start close to the end and carry through to the end so that while there are themes and concepts that carry all the way from chapter one loomings to chapter 135 the chase the third day even the epilogue there are a lot of things that develop in part way through the uh like the early chapters and then only last for let's say 20 to 30 chapters you know the length of a normal book mm-hmm. and conclude themselves ishmael and queequeg's story as partners concludes in queequeg and his coughing more or less um similarly the uh prophecies of fidala are only raised in the whale watch nearly at the end of the book 
yeah, that's that's true. Um, I think what you're saying makes a certain amount of sense. Uh, I'm not sure I really have like a grand theory of the structure of this novel, sure, but sure. Uh, what you've just proposed definitely does make sense to me. And I think the I think approaching this novel with these idea that there's these sections to it, these periods, uh, is an interesting one. Uh, yeah. Though obviously, I still recommend reading it all as one big thing because it's just it's great. It's a whale of a book. <laughs> Okay, so that's that's covering a number of things. As mentioned, uh, Tashtigo, Dagu, and Queequeg, the three Harpeneers, mostly get treated as a set. The other two Harpeneers really don't have a ton of uh, individual development and remain that way basically through the whole book. Um, a few others. Obviously, uh, Bildag and Peleg, Bildad and Peleg get completely left behind when they've finished piloting out of the harbor. Not a yeah, huge surprise yeah. there. I do think it's funny that I think their names basically aren't mentioned for the entire rest of the book. Nobody cares. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, they did their uh, comedy duo and uh, vanished. And similarly, I think basically every other captain we meet, except for uh, the captain of the Rachel, who even then isn't himself present in the epilogue, uh, they really don't reappear. There's just a brief meeting of ships and then they pass on. Yeah, I think a lot of those captains are definitely, like, interesting figures. Oh, no, they absolutely they are. Contrast with Ahab and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, but it's much like the Town Ho story, where it's an entire encapsulated narrative that is interesting because of how it bears on the Pequod, and then they pass on. And, you know, that's straightforwardly the whaling grounds. You're not going to see the same ship multiple times, Of really. course, of course. Especially if you meet them going out as you're coming in and so on. Um, we discussed tub, sub and flask, that Stub and Flask briefly. Um... Yeah, I might be about ready to do questions. Let me just, just, let me just uh, roll through one last time. Father Mapple. No. Oh. So here's the thing. Father Mapple is a really minor character. Yeah. But I'm aware that he gets played by some pretty impressive act. Like, he's a character that whenever people do an adaptation of Moby Dick, you have to have Father Mapple. Yeah. And I don't know why. Like, I genuinely do not think he is that thematically important to the book. I guess people are just really struck by the, the sermon scene, probably, you know? Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. That makes sense. I don't know. We'll see what it looks like in, in the adaptations that we check out. Mm -hmm. um, but Also, I think we covered Bulkington in my extensive description of why I love the Lee Shore. Yeah? Yeah. Uh, okay, okay, that's... Uh, we talked about Pip a bit and how he sort of appears later on. Do we want to talk more about Pip? Or I think we may have covered him in the cabin in the castaway. Yeah, I feel like we talked about Pip when we talked about the Pip chapters. Um, mm -hmm. Certainly uh, in a certain way, he's not really a, a character so much as he is like a figure, figure. I guess. That's yeah. true of nearly everyone, though. That, like, yeah. No, if you start, for sure. If you start saying that they can't be a character and also a figure, it's everyone but Ishmael, Ahab, and maybe Queequeg. <laughs> oh, and Starbuck. But then again, Starbuck and Ahab are absolutely figures against each yeah, other. Yeah, no, no, I totally see what you mean. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, there's also... Just want to mention that one of my favorite character, like, just, one of, two of my favorite character, uh, like, little portraits are the blacksmith and the carpenter. Yeah, no, they are. Perth and the Nameless Carpenter are both fantastic. Yes. Uh, great little things. Um, hmm. Okay, here's a question. Which is your favorite whaling captain who isn't, uh, isn't Ahab? Kind of mixing up all the names. Yeah. Hmm. Let me think. What are what are the? Uh... So Legend Arm was Captain Boomer of the Samuel Enderby. He was the man who had his arm replaced with a mallet because he lost it to Moby Dick in a terrible, horrifying harpoon accident. Right. Um. And he's the one who, having lost an arm, has learned to have a bit of humor about it and does not seek revenge on the white whale. And there goes 
all of Ahab's hopes of, like, uh, fellowship. Okay, so so let me just, like, list them. Yeah. I'm just scrolling through the, the chapters in order to see, like... Well, I've got okay. a list of them here from Oh, Wikipedia. oh, you do? You have a list yeah, yeah. of other... There's Boomer. There's mm-hmm. Derek Didier. That's the, of the Virgin, the whaling cat, the oh, German yeah. captain who's mostly a figure of fun. Yes. Uh, there's... The uh, nameless bach- captain of the Bachelor, who's like, I don't even believe in Moby Dick. Uh-huh. Uh, oh yeah, uh, Derek Didier had not yet heard of Moby Dick because he was so green on the Virgin. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, captain of the Rosebud, who also has not heard of Moby Dick, and who gets tricked by Stubb into giving up Ambergris. Um, mm-hmm. The captain gardener of the Rachel, who is well aware of Moby Dick and also desperately looking for his son. Right. And... Uh, there's the Captain of Delight, also nameless, who uh, loses pretty badly. And for some reason, they don't list on the Wikipedia page the Captain of the uh, Town Ho. Or what about the Jeroboam? Or the Jeroboam. Captain May- Mayhew. Mayhew of the Jeroboam is not listed. We should... Someone should fix this Wikipedia page. I almost <laughs> said we should, but I don't want to give myself more work. Yeah. Someone should add these other whaling captains to the Wikipedia page of uh, list of Moby Dick characters. Whoever does that, um, gold star to you. (laughs) I'll put a gold star, a really shitty looking gold star, on your certificate of completion if you do that. Yeah, that reminds me. If you want, like, a JPEG that says that you have completed listening to our podcast, you can still get that. You simply have to at Ben on Twitter. At me on Twitter, come at me on Discord, presumably email the uh, question thing, though we don't check it that often. We're not answering questions. Yeah, yeah, but I think if people email whalestatements at gmail.com. Send me a messenger pigeon, do it by snail mail, uh, send me omens in my dreams. (laughs) Any way you are capable of communicating, I will make a shitty JPEG for you. Although, the, the weirder the way you communicate with me, the more I will attempt to cause horrible JPEG artifacts. So, you know, Twitter's fine. <sighs> Anyways, favorite captain? Um, I guess I like Gardner of the Rachel. Yeah, Gardner of the... You know, he's, he's a compelling figure. Yeah, for me it is either Boomer or Gardner. They are both... Ah, oh, fantastic. Um, I think... I think Captain Gardner's plea to Ahab is amazing. Yeah. But I think that Boomer's counterpoint to Ahab is possibly... It's just such a good chapter. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Anyways, uh, on some level, Gardner is just expressing his grief. Whereas Boomer has more development as a character, if not a ton. Yeah, that's totally fair. Yep. Okay, so that's Captain's. Uh, final verdict on Fidala. I mean, I think he was, like, a fascinating figure to have in the narrative, and Mm -hmm. I think it was really interesting how it, like, gradually became clear that he was actually kind of opposed to Ahab. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I think that's true. He's also super orientalist as a figure and a character. Yeah, yeah. That's just true. But, yeah, no, he's he's fascinating, and uh, his dynamic with Ahab leads to some amazing passages, and, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh... I think that might be... Oh, well, there's one more named character on this Wikipedia page. We're not talking about Ahab or Ishmael, because we've talked about them extensively. Mm-hmm. Uh, Moby Dick. Oh, the whale, you mean? The whale. Moby Dick, the white whale? Yeah. What's your final verdict? Or rather, be he agent or be he principal, uh, is the white whale indeed... Uh, you know, all that most maddens and uh, the, you know, the, that stirs up the lees of things, all truth with malice in it. 
Or is he merely, as Starbuck would have it, a brute, a mere animal? I feel like one of the questions that we got sent was basically... Yes. Uh, so one of the questions that we got asked via a Twitter DM uh, uh, was... From whom? Uh, from uh, Johan828 on Twitter. Hi. <laughs> uh, asked, uh, asked multiple questions, but the first one was, what do you guys think Moby Dick is metaphorically? Oh, so, boy, yeah. Okay, is that how you want to transition from yeah, character discussion it. to let's questions? Yeah, let's do it. What is Moby Dick, metaphorically speaking? Well, I mean, I think that there's a lot of arguments to be made about whether or not Moby Dick is metaphorical. And part of that, you know, so a classic, I think I may have mentioned this before, but a classic way of taking Moby Dick as a book and Ahab as a character is that Ahab is a, quote, bad reader, that he is too literal. He cannot deal with the possibility of a conceptual framework or, you know, a lack of purpose, and instead has to believe that the whale, the literal object, is his enemy. Now, I think that's a terrible reading, because he explicitly says in the quarter deck that there is a hidden thing behind Moby Dick that drives him. He clearly engages with symbolic meanings in other things, and the ways in which meanings are meanings to him, but not to others. So, I think we can throw that out. However, I think the question is, is the whale metaphorical? Is the whale literally an entity of, you know, danger? Is the whale literally devilish in some way or godlike? Or is the whale representative of simply, I mean, I think there are many things it could be metaphorically, but the most important one is just the fact that the world is unfair, the terrible things, if it is purely metaphorical and not invested with an actuality within the text, if it is not, if it is merely symbol, not both symbol and thing, then I think the thing that it stands for is the idea that sometimes shit happens to you that's really horrible, and you don't really get control over it, and there isn't necessarily a purpose behind it. That's a classic reading of the novel, is that Moby Dick is just a big angry whale that happens to be kind of smarter or more dangerous than most, and Ahab's blasphemous quest is doomed, not because he is metaphysically incapable of defeating God, but because the whole point is that he is misattributing his suffering and his anger. Yeah, yeah. And, like, I, I, I feel like um, when it comes to, like, the question of is the whale just a symbol that uh, Ahab sees, or is it in some way, like, a real representative of God or of evil in the world? Um, those are questions of their own. But the question of, like, if the whale is a symbol, mm -hmm. is a metaphor, what does it represent? I feel like that's actually made pretty clear in the novel that, like, or at least what Moby Dick represents to Ahab is yes. the and subtle I th I demonism the, in the world. Yeah, and I think that's the opening is where it's, on some level, the question is, is Ahab right? And mm -hmm. I think that if you want something that the whale is metaphorical for, even accepting those structures of uncertainty of Ahab's, you know, the question of whether Ahab is in fact so powerful, um, I mean, sorry, whether Ahab is is so powerful a mind as to see the reality of this enemy. Or if he was, in fact, you know, he, Madness Maddened, has mistaken it. What I would say is that probably we should look to the whiteness of the whale, where yeah. indefiniteness, uncertainty, those things that are both the, like, immense opening power of the ocean that allows someone to swell to these great heights, but also which torment Ahab, who wants to know the answer and wants to understand. Regardless of anything else, Ahab is a Gnostic, and by that we mean that Ahab desires to know and act. And if the world is fundamentally in some ways unknowable, if the whale, white as it is, is utterly, ultimately undefinable, uncertain, it might be God, the devil, or simply a creature of nature, 
then that unknowableness is itself symbolized in Moby Dick's snowy hide. Yeah, yeah. I I, I think that, like, like, um, on some level, um, like, there's an interesting, I guess, play between yes. the interpretation that Ahab has and the interpretation that Ishmael has as laid out in The Whiteness of the Whale, where, like, for Ahab, the whale is sort of God's ill will in the universe. Uh, a definite demonism. Yeah, the, 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 the Gnostic demiurge. Yes, the whale can be interpreted, it can be known, and what it is is an enemy. But for, uh, for Ishmael, it's not so much that Ishmael doesn't see... Like, Ishmael also sees in Moby Dick... A kind of evil. Yeah, like, he, he literally um, uses... I'm looking at the whiteness of the yeah, whale, so, so and he uses the phrase, the demonism in the world, yes. to talk about something relating to this. But but for Ishmael, I think Ishmael's sense of the demonism in the world is much less something that is, like, motivated by a, a an agent, and more like... Something that just sort of exists namelessly. Ishmael loves God. Like, we often see this. Ishmael believes in uh, some kind of heaven or some kind of, uh, you know, salvation. He is dedicated to his fellow man in that. And so I think that, to some extent, Ishmael must see in in the whale the devil, in the sense not of, like, the demiurge, but in the sense of, you know, something that is perhaps against God or is within the world that is unkind. But Ishmael is also often very clear, in fact, this shows up in the pulpit just before the sermon, talking about the world as a, is a, this world is a ship on its passage out and not a voyage complete. So the yeah. strifes and dangers of the world, as symbolized by Moby Dick, are not ultimately the end of the story. There's a world beyond, a life after. Yeah, yeah. But then at the same time, like, I think Ishmael is in, like, a deep state of doubt about the actual nature of the sort of spiritual world that he Mm -hmm. in some way apprehends. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think that whiteness is for him uncertain, indefinite, something you cannot make out. Like, he talks about the polar whiteness where when the ship is surrounded by frozen ice and everything is white in all directions, the eyes play tricks on you and you can't tell how far away or large things are. And I think that that quality of unknowability or of the the, the uh, delusion of the eye that is created by that is important to Moby Dick. You can't tell if Moby Dick really is as evil as it seems to Ahab or if he is as unevil, as meaningless, as uh, frankly placid and ignorable as he seems to Starbuck. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, if I had to say one thing that the whale represents... It is the impossibility of determining whether or not God is evil. (laughs) Yeah. Like, it is that epistemic limit, which also, I think very straightforwardly in the book, you are thrust up against and destroyed. I think that on some level, I do think that the book is Gnostic. I do think it believes that even if there's this unknowability, whatever is set in motion has some kind of culpability. Just because there are prophecies, there are supernatural forces at work in this text. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think that's kind of true. Um, so the, the second question that Johan828 sent us is, would the book be better or worse with rocket-propelled harpoons? <laughs> I don't know how to answer that question, but give me a second. Um... <laughs> Consider Queequeg, instead of th- tossing his dart, uh, 
lining up the whale in his sights. Okay, actually, that 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 sinks it for me. It would be worse because, as in this particular mode, the athleticism and action of the harpooners is important. Now, I can imagine a Moby Dick version in which rocket-propelled harpoons are quite good, but I think that it would require some reworking into, frankly, the sort of post-industrial uh, imaginary. You'd have to be, like, thinking in those terms. And also, on some level, it just makes it too easy. Like, yeah. if you can't kill a whale, even the white whale with rocket-propelled harpoons, the whale has to be either actively supernatural with, like, magic powers that you can visibly see in the fight, or you have to be really bad at whaling. Yeah, that's fair. Basically, I think rocket-propelled harpoons put it way too much on the side of the hunters. Yeah, fair enough. We need to we need to um, increase the whale's armaments if we're going to exactly do that. like a terrifying space whale. Sure, get get those rocket harpoons. Yeah, I think that's a reasonable perspective. All right. Uh, so we also got questions via email. Um, there's a couple from a long or there's one question from a long time ago I, that i don't well, remember if we actually did or not let me see uh, this was from november 2020 esther asked us what our favorite kind of whale is oh no i don't think we answered that because okay I, uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I i don't know i'm kind of partial to blue whales they're big yeah uh but like there's all sorts of whales and i've never had a strong like specific favorite kind of whale so uh Blue whale is just because they're big. I don't have, like, a specific favorite whale. Um, hmm. Except probably not orcas. I mean, I think orcas are cool. Like They I are guess... cool, but, you know, we have enough wolves on land. I suppose. Um, I'm looking into, like... Lists of whales? Oh, yeah. belugas are also really nice. Belugas, belugas are Belugas are charming. Yeah, it's it's not clear to me what the, what the technical uh, distinction of what counts as a whale i would is. just go with any cetacean even the small ones okay well um okay mm. so there's like there's yeah, baleen yeah. whales i will say i think uh, baleen whales are the most whale-ish whales like they are fair. the most whale to me and then you know there's there's toothed whales mm-hmm. um they're not core whales to me but they are important and oh you know sperm what whales are definitely you know what my favorite whale is oh the grampus whatever that is i believe the grampus was uh one of the several names that uh he gave to the orca okay there's a grampus class submarine oh grampus genus the genus that includes risso's dolphin as its only species that is that's probably named after grampus in the book though uh, potentially? I don't know when it was named. They Oh, um, they're also no, they also include false killer whales. Yeah. Um, oh, no, those are just closely related. I'm not included within the Grampus. Anyways. Yes. Uh, yeah. Anyway. Uh, whichever real world species the word Grampus <laughs> applies to, that's my favorite whale because the word Grampus is funny. And it's funny to yeah. think about a whale being about the bigness of a Grampus. Yeah. Which is something he said repeatedly during the chapter. Yeah, chat yeah. He used, he used the extremely indefinite whale as the marker for whale sizes because, of course, he did. Yes. Of course, Ishmael does that. Yes. All right. Next uh, one? Yeah, the next question. We have a number of questions from Susan. Um, she says, Dear Mark and Ben, 
I really love higgledy-piggledy whale statements. It is so delightful to listen to two really good friends discuss a book that they adore. Thank you, Susan. We really yeah, enjoy no, making the show for you. Yeah, no, really charming. Thank you so much. I am on episode 28 and will be very sad when I get to the end. Oh, man. So Susan is not going to hear this. For a while, for yeah. For a while. I, I well, mean, depending on how quickly she burns through it. Yeah, well, it sounds like she but is... But we're rooting for her. I mean, she says she'll be sad when she gets to the end, so I hope mm. she's savoring it. Yeah, that's fair. But also, I hope when she gets to the end of the book, she will enjoy getting name checked on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a couple of questions I have about the book selected from among a great number. Why is Captain Ahab only known by his first name and we don't even know his last name? Um, and, and, you know, she kind of she points out. Yeah, she, it is very odd that this is the case since in the novel it is clear that this would be disrespectful. It is also very odd that Ishmael does not comment on this, even though other trappings of a captain's authority are described in detail. Any ideas? Uh, and I have some thoughts about this oh, immediately. I mean, most characters in the novel are known by either only their first or their last name. A lot of mononyms. Yeah, so like Ishmael, for example, um, is a mononym, and also like there's reason to believe a pseudonym, right? Yeah, Queequeg, um, Starbuck, Stub, Flask. Yeah, I don't think we know Starbuck, Stub, or Flask's first names. I can't think we of We only s- know Ahab, Bildad, and Peleg's first names. We don't know their last names. Um, I can't think of, I think only the other captains get yeah, both names. Yeah, the, the captains they encounter are sometimes named with first and last. But yeah, yeah I, I think that, um, I think that, like, part of the effect that's being created by a lot of the characters not having, like, quote-unquote full names mm-hmm. is a sense of anonymization. Um, mm. Like, there is a sense of, like, maybe this is something that really happened and Ishmael has changed or... Uh, edited some of the names Mm. uh, to preserve anonymity. Yeah, uh, for me, I think the effect is similar to that. It's archetypal uh, Mm. effect. It makes them seem as though they are, to some extent, figures that can be understood through their single name. It's not, you know, there is no generic category to which Ahab belongs other than simply Ahab. And I think that the... Regardless of realism or respect, I think that Ahab, with his single name, is far more memorable than he would be if he were given a second... Ahab uh, Smith. I mean, I assume it would be a little bit more dramatic than that, but yes. I agree. (laughs) Ahab Smith would be a really bad name. But, like, even characters like Perth the Blacksmith, they just have the one name. Mononyms are the the going concern on uh, the Pequod. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I think it's an interesting uh, thing to note. I, I hadn't really thought of it, actually. Yeah. I'll also point out that he was, like, uh, I think, like, orphaned at a young age. So it's possible that Ahab doesn't have another name. Uh, but I'd be surprised. Yeah, I mean, yes, he was, like, orphaned pretty young. But, like, they speak of his mother having mm. named him, right? So it would be strange if she didn't also give him a surname then. But I don't know. Um, Susan's next question Oh, uh, that's th- actually, I just remembered, he has that whole thing about mothers who take their fa- father's names to the grave. Mm. That could be him. Yeah, yeah, maybe so. Um, In the Gilder, I believe. Yeah, and I will say also, Ahab is married and has a kid. This is so true. So he has to have a family name in that, like, context, Yeah, yeah. Right? God, just, <laughs> the boy Ahab. <laughs> Ahab Jr. The small Ahab. Uh, Susan also asks about, um, in the discussion of the masthead chapter, Ben mentions a Turner painting of the statue of Admiral Nelson being forged, uh, and she can't find it. Do you know? Oh, 
it's um it's not specifically the statue of uh nelson being forged i may have misspoken it is a statue commemorating nelson's victory it's uh i think if you search turner uh angel um uh it should be but it's like a winged victory statue i and i am really sorry that i i probably gave the 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 implication that it was nelson's column but i believe that uh uh, the angel standing in the sun. Does that no, sound right? No, no, no. That's a different one. Um, that's okay. That's, that's a later what, Turner. That's what you get when you Google Turner. Flood or that's what you get when you Google Turner angel painting. So yeah. Okay, I'm gonna look this up on my device. Uh, but no, it's um, it's an it's a huge furnace in which uh, here Turner furnace statue. I'm gonna uh, search this. The Hero of a Hundred Fights? Yes, it's The Hero of a Hundred Fights. Um, which, huh, interesting. This is the not complete version. But The Hero a of a Hundred Fights is also a Wisconsin rock band. What? Okay, band I have a takes, band I need to check out, I guess, but... The band takes its name from a painting by J.M.W. Turner. They emerged from the ashes of Brass Knuckles for Tough Guys, Tintoretto, yeah, yeah. So, and Monagra. So on the Tate, the Tate website, where you can look up the Hero of a Hundred Fights, it says, This canvas was originally an exploration of industrial machinery, but it was reworked to show the moment when a bronze statue of the Duke of Wellington, not Nelson, the Duke of Wellington, my bad, was removed from its mold. Using the intense light of the foundry to obscure the figure, Turner transforms Wellington into an ethereal presence. The image is in stark contrast to Turner's carefully researched battle scenes. Here, tone and color are employed to endow a national hero with elemental force. And I think it's a very cool Turner painting that uh, it figures in, um, oh, in uh, Turner, The Genius of Thermodynamics Before Carnot, which is a fantastic piece by, I'm forgetting the name of the theorist because it's in the evening when we're recording this and my brain is fried, but uh, that's a fantastic piece about how Turner's paintings have this dynamism between heat and cold that is similar to a heat engine, to a steam engine, to a furnace. And in this case, it is a very literal furnace where the machinery is dark and heavy, and then there's this erupting fire around the emerging statue of Wellington. So yeah, the painting is The Hero of a Hundred Fights, and the statue is Wellington, and I just got that wrong. And what was the Turner, the genius of thermodynamics? Uh, it's, um, it's the genius of thermodynamics before Carnot, um, or it might be not be the genius of thermodynamics before Carnot, it might be something slightly different from that. Uh, I just want to try to actually describe it in a way that people will be able to Google. It's, um, yeah, no, I'm trying to find it, because it's a specific theory paper that's not, um... Yeah, what I need what I need to search is Turner and Carnot. Sorry for the delay. No, we can we can always edit this down if we need to. Uh, Tur mm, Turner translates Carnot might be it. Uh, yes, it's Michael Saris. That's S E R R E S, who wrote in uh, it. Turner translates Carnot. It's not the genius of thermodynamics before Carnot. I just got that wrong. But it's called Turner translates Carnot, and it's a fantastic essay about. The basically the change in style between um, before Turner and after, which is the development of not just the sort of early Impressionism, but also, as uh, Saris argues, the shift from a world of mechanics, of wheels and turning rope and gears and 
forces that can be easily understood and intersected in that way, sail and so on, to an era of thermodynamics, of fields expanding, of the pressure differential between uh, heat uh, and water in its uh, chambers. And so the argument is that uh, Turner's paintings, which are paintings of the Industrial Revolution at its time, and these, you know, amazing paintings of the sun, are like the early intimations of the cultural effect that Carnot, when he put forward his basic theory of the heat engine, would formalize into actual scientific description. Uh, I should, I feel like I should mention, for anyone who's trying to find the article, or I think it's also like a book chapter that Ben is talking about, yes. um, it is like an academic publication so on the one hand i don't think you can find it legally. it's on a wordpress but yes here. if you google turner translates carnot and that's carnot c-a-r-n-o-t yes thank you i was about to say that sorry um anyway if you google that you will find a link to a pdf of like a scan of this chapter from a book by michelle Ceres or Ceres. Um, i think it might be a chapter from a i mean there might be an article from a uh, magazine, but I'm not positive. Well, it was probably oh, Hermes, both. Literature, Science, Philosophy by Michael Ceres, edited, etc., etc. So yeah, that's probably a book. I yes. would assume. I would. It's very possible it was like an, a um, a journal article and a chapter in a book, right? Yeah, like, that's that entirely happens possible, all the time. Yes. But um, this is the only chapter of this book I've read. Uh, but I I hugely recommend it. It's only like six pages. Uh, it's a bit dense, but it is fantastic. I've yeah. actually used it in a paper, and I had a lot of fun. Cool. Yeah. All right. Um, hopeful that paper someday gets published because I was very happy about it. It involves whale oil in turn. Yes. Uh, so uh, Susan goes on with um, just some suggestions for our, our future podcasts. Um, well, we appreciate uh, it. Yeah, she suggests a number of different Moby Dick films. Mm -hmm. um, and we mm -hmm. definitely are planning on watching uh, a number of possible Moby Dick films. We're 100% going to watch Moby Dick 1956, uh, she which also she recommends. Wants, and she also wants to see the Moby Dick musical we haven't yeah. been able to get our hands on. Listen. Keep circulating the tapes. If anyone can find this. Yeah, if anyone knows where to get Moby Dick a Musical Reckoning, please help. Be a hero. I think we literally said that earlier in this episode, but it bears repeating. <laughs> yeah, look, um, we're going to be saying this in a lot of recordings until we get our hands on that thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, or forever. So yeah, we will definitely be watching at least some films and like checking out how they ad adapt it. So I hope Susan enjoys that. Mm -hmm. Um uh, she suggests that we should make up our own Moby Dick screenplay. I don't think Ben or I, I have any oh. skills in writing screenplays. Or the time, or, oh, wow, yeah. No, I don't. I don't think we can. Yeah, I don't have, like, almost any creative writing, uh, like, experience. I, I don't, I'm not trying to be down on myself. I'm just literally saying I have not written, like, any fiction since I was in maybe high school. Um, and Ben does do creative writing, but he you mostly do tabletop projects. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would like to get back to static fiction at some point rather than tabletop-like content. But uh, honestly, with the writing for grad school, I it, it's, uh, it splits my attention in a way that writing uh, tabletop stuff just doesn't. Yeah. Well, what I'm saying is I think that if you and I were to work together on some sort of written Moby Dick project, the chances are much higher that it would be... I did like, have an idea for a tabletop game, yes. Yeah, a, a Moby Dick tabletop thing. <laughs> yes, a, a Voyage tabletop game. I'm not going to go into it here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we definitely do want to check out uh, any musicals we can get our hands yeah. on. Um, unfortunately, watching musicals, you know, after their official release or, you know, their, their performance 
time is over, it's very hard to get your hands on like a recording of a musical. Yeah. Um, apparently, there are a couple of card games. I do find this idea interesting. Um, so potentially we could do that. I don't know if that would sustain a whole episode, but we could check it yeah, out. Yeah, I guess it also kind of depends on how many players the card games call for. Yeah, um, I don't think that there's really. I think there's other some other suggestions of stuff to check out. Um, but I think we should probably move on to the next question. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, Thank you so much for the email. Really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, oh, apparently, okay, this is one thing that I just want to note out. Apparently there's some sort of relationship between the text of Moby Dick and the Bible codes. Uh, I, I, let's not look this up right now in the middle oh, okay. of recording the questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. We we'll cannot answer that as a question or, or respond to it. It is clearly a some kind of convoluted thing okay so all right the next question that we have is uh from joe uh who congratulates us thank you very much yeah Um, thanks uh and wants to know how would each of us adapt moby dick what would we include what would we excise oh well i mentioned the possibility of tabletop rpg-ish stuff but that's just such a different model of fiction that it's not really applicable here like, on some level, it's not about adapting and excising in, um, in tabletop stuff. It's about taking what kind of narrative structures, what kind of things could you remix effectively, and then providing the tools to the reader. So a tabletop game would be about, like, what is the structure of Moby Dick and what are the stories like Moby Dick that you might want to play out independently. So some kind of game about a voyage, a crew, its dynamics, and the overriding drive of its captain and whether or not that comes to fruition but you'd really need to start messing around with it to have a sense of it. Yeah. Do you have a, a medium you'd like to take Moby Dick into? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, because, like, the thing is, I feel like as far as straightforward adaptation, which is to say just, like, making a film or some other piece of media that just presents the narrative of Moby Dick in a straightforward way, I feel like that has clearly been done by culture. Um, and in at least some media, I think it's not, like, a very... Um, adaptable yeah i don't think it's a very natural fit like Mm. as an example i really love comics um Mm -hmm. and the idea of like adapting something that i think is interesting to the medium of comics is like an Mm. interesting idea to me um but at the same time i don't think moby dick is well suited to that because it is so like caught up in its verbal convolutions Mm. right yeah And, and so i think that translating a work like Moby Dick, which is so much about, like, depth and complexity of language. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, it, it, it's difficult to translate that entirely to a visual medium, I think. You say that there is a really good comic version of the first volume of Proust's Enrichet de Tamperdu, which I mispronounced horribly. Um, so it is possible to do deeply convoluted literary language into beautiful comics i think it would be mostly aimed at like a a coffee table book kind of thing right like i guess that's the thing i can imagine something i can imagine a a compelling piece of comics art that draws on moby dick that is not really trying to be an independent thing Mm, you know but instead trying to just be a companion to the text yes exactly um yeah i I, I think maybe what I would find to be a very interesting way of adapting Moby Dick, and, you know, I know that I'm not the first person to consider doing this, but is uh, via music, not in as quite as, like, 
you know, I'm not necessarily interested in like a Moby Dick rock opera or a Moby Dick <laughs> musical. Although, actually, I'm very interested in those things. If you I, just don't mean you think we need more, I don't want to make those per se. But I would be interested in like, I would be interested in what like a piece of you know like instrumental music that tries to communicate the mood of a per, a section of Moby Dick sounds like. Well, we are um, going to be covering Whale Corps later, so we'll, well get at yes. least a few chat takes of that. Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, hmm, I've been thinking a little bit, and one thing I would actually like to see is a science fiction novel taking off Moby Dick, which there are a few that have connections to it. There's Delaney's Nova, there's Farmer's The Wind Whales of Ishmael. There's a number of works, but none of them are really doing what I see as the core elements I'd like to adapt, which is the discursive qualities of Moby Dick, the digressive qualities of Moby Dick. There's some of this in Nova because Delaney is fantastic, but I think that you could really create an interesting science fiction world overview, an epic of a setting, and I think if it really cottoned on to themes of unknowability, of, um, of travel, of, you know, the sort of I mean, butchery and intensity of this, I think you could create a really interesting science fictional world that draws on these things, especially if you included some interesting, uh, well, Nova, but not in the sense of exploding stars the way Delaney meant. I mean, like, the plural of Nova, like new things, ideas in a science fictional world. Yeah, no, I, I definitely think that's true. I mean, I'm very interested in, uh, we... we one of the adaptations that we're going to do relatively soon, we need to figure out the scheduling for this, but we, we are hoping to cover uh, Hakuge Legend of the Moby Dick, which is a science fiction anime adaptation. So I'm very yeah, curious so, yeah, to that's, see that's exciting. what that does. Um, but I really, I would really be interested in a science fictional text that takes structure and theme and maybe, you know, spaceship from Moby Dick, but isn't about a space whale. Uh, and, you know, again, Nova is a good... Uh, path trailblazer for this kind of thing but is interested in the obsession in the grappling with god i mean frankly i think that having a certain gene wolf-esque theological bent to your science fiction might be fantastic here yeah yeah um i think the kind of pop cultural idea of moby dick often gets pretty far away from oh, like the religious yeah. ideas in the narrative yeah um, the the stuff that the pop cultural Moby Dick deals in is pretty purely, I mean, it's the Ahab as purely, Ven, it's basically Starbucks take on the narrative of Moby Dick. Right. <laughs> you know, the conventional, the normal, yeah. the standard person's take on Moby Dick has become the common take. Perhaps this is some commentary on the kingly comment, stop me, this is oh me God. referencing Squires at Knights and Squires okay, let's, 1. Let's move on to the next, or, or and, and the last, I think, set of questions that we have, which are from Joao. Um, Hi, Joao. All right. Uh, so. Who was our first recipient of the certificate. That's true. Yeah, he has to get a certain amount of respect for that, and he's a he's about to piss away all that respect with his questions. <laughs> uh, he says some very nice things at the entrance of his email. He's he's complimenting us, uh, buttering it, uh, us up to make us feel better about what he's about to hit us with. Really? Who is the character in Moby Dick who's the most like Kirei Katomine? Really? How would you feel about Katomine being on the Pequod's crew? Really? Really? Oh God. Okay. Um, mm, I have to completely shift gears. So oh, okay, do we all know who Kirei Katomine is, listeners? Uh, I know they can't respond to me. Mm, oh, that's a, hmm. If you don't know who Kirei Katomine is, I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> uh. I will. Um, 
he's a mean priest in trash but amazing anime fra- anime and related things franchise fate visual stay novel, night please. visual night yeah visual novel yes but i came to it through the animes first through the dean anime so yeah 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 oof. anyway um, katomine kirei he's an anime character he's, he's an, an anime, anime character priest. and the thing is he is i'm gonna give some credit here relatively compatible with this because his whole deal is the existence of evil and the meaning of that and whether specifically he is trying to answer in ways that i will not get into here for spoilers reasons whether a thing that is born to do only evil deserves to live or should be destroyed before it comes into existence he's basically taking this sort of ethical stance in favor of the right of a thing to exist even though its nature is completely evil, and because he wants to see how it will feel about being born to do only evil. He's I, wildly anime. Uh, alright, so, um... So I think he fit proposal, in on the... I have a proposal about the character in the book already who is the most similar to him. Oh, yeah? Uh, I think it's Gabriel. Not necessarily an affect, exactly. Mm. But in terms of being, like... A priest of an evil god. Yes. And also being capable of getting the people around him to just do whatever he wants. I don't know that Kiri can do that, except by punching them. I mean, so, like, he is... In the way that, like, Gabriel is, he's not, like... He's not, like, charismatic in the sense of, like, he gets you to think mm-hmm. that he's nice. But he's very, like, he's orchestrating everything for a lot. I mean, not everything, but he's... Yeah, in in the in one of the three timelines, look, it's a whole thing. Yeah, but, but the idea of, like, him as, as someone who can get people to dance to his tune, that's totally there. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. I See, the thing is, I see a lot of relationship between him and possibly... Almost Fidala? Like, okay. Fidala is the one who is leading Ahab towards this final confrontation with this force of evil, or alternatively, this force of divine providence that Ahab is determined to destroy himself against. And Fidala is the one who, knowing that this is an evil task and knowing all of its involutions, is determined to see it through to the end. Now, if Kiri Katomine were our Fidala, he'd be giving a lot more speeches. And he'd yeah. also be, like, being weird about it at people. But, you know. I- I- imagine imagine uh, Kotomine telling Ishmael to rejoice. Ah, oh, that's good. That's very good. Anyways, <laughs> so there's some options. I think that basically Kotomine Kire could easily be on the Pequod. I think he is probably most like, uh, yeah, one of these characters. A character he's very unlike is Father Mapple. <laughs> Just felt the need to put that out there. Yeah, Anyways, yeah, yeah, that... There goes that goodwill. God, just Ishmael losing his fucking mind when, like, Katomine, just sailor on the Pequod, takes his shirt off. Because you know what that man looks like shirtless. It's absurd. Yes, yes, he is... He is built. <laughs> he is built like the Sistine Chapel. <laughs> okay. <sighs> so the next, uh... Oh, man, he'd make a good harpineer, actually. Sure. And he is definitely... In the framework of this book, a pagan. Yeah. Okay. He the wears next, a lot of crosses. The but. next pro- provocative question that Joao has for us. Two, is Moby Dick a science fiction novel? Ah, I have flared my nostrils and I prepare to spout. Um, <laughs> okay, so the first and most important thing to say here is that there are multiple ways in which something can or can be a science fiction novel. Some of which are just completely not applicable to this book. 
if you take the historical nominal version of science fiction with both uh, Delaney, who I very deeply respect, and Westfall, who I kind of respect, have taken, it cannot be science fiction because the term was uh, created by Hugo Gernsback, kind of a jerk, in 26, 1926. And therefore... Um, the book simply precedes it by too much. Yeah, that's um, a that's that's one interpretation of defining yes, science. Yes, that it has a, that there's a critical body of science fiction. Obviously, as you can tell, I find this nominalist version a little bit boring. It doesn't really nominalist give us... meaning like based on the name, right? Yes. So and science fiction begins to exist when someone coins the word science fiction, and and not just that, but also it helps to define a critical body of people saying this is or isn't science fiction and arguing about it, and that helps to reinforce and create a critical community, that is to say, the people who buy those magazines and read them, and that creates the concept of science fiction as it continues forward. And that is an important point in the history of science fiction. I would say that if you allow it to creep a little earlier to the scientific romance of Wells and Verne, which are post-Moby Dick, but are closer, you can maybe start to get in the direction of, well, Moby Dick certainly has gothic elements, and there's a continuum between the gothic and the scientific romance and science fiction as it eventually arrives at us. So I personally like to start science fiction with Frankenstein. I think that there's some very interesting arguments that science fiction is ultimately traceable to the period of revolutions at the beginning of the 19th century. This is the Industrial Revolution, uh, the appearance of Egyptomania and the creation of archaeology and sort of the first appearance of deep time. Uh, Marx and his concepts of taking Hegel and not just going through the entire history as a dynamic force, but also history continuing through the present into the future. These are all, I think, almost over-determining the creation of some kind of literature like science fiction, which took various forms and eventually crystallized, at least in America, and sort of from there to everywhere else via empire, science fiction. Therefore, I think it is fair to say that Moby Dick could theoretically be put into science fiction between Poe as an early quote-unquote science fiction author in the sense of this concept and, you know, the scientific romances of Wells and Verne, it would be part of the sparse middle century area that science fiction really didn't do much in. Um, he certainly isn't drawing on Frankenstein or a lot of the European, like, romantics directly, but symbolism has its connections there. So I think you can argue that it's within a tradition that science fiction draws on and could therefore be said to have some kind of historical connection to that development. However, that's sort of, that is a historical but not nominalist historical version of science fiction. Well and good. Now, there are other versions of science. Sorry, I just realized how long I've been going on. Yeah, so Do you mind if I keep going for a little I, longer? I mean, yeah, go for it, go for it. Okay, I, I so, assume the next place you're going is Suvin, right? Suvin is exactly where I was going next, yes. So Suvin puts forward a conceptual definition of science fiction in the 70s, which is that science fiction is the quote-unquote literature of cognitive estrangement, um, which is to say it is estranged, it is not about our world, and there are things that are new and weird about it, especially what he calls the novum, which is such a useful term, which is the thing that is different from our world in a science fiction novel, especially the important bit, but more generally, any, like, new thing is a novum. And so, like, to pick an example uh, off the top of my head, in Dune, things like the sandworm and I would say the, the spice, spice are nova. Is the sandworm the is totally one. a nova, though. The, the sandworm, yeah, but this is actually where the concept of the novum breaks down a little, because nearly well, yes. all science fiction works, except for some very specific ones, have yes. multiple novae, and also... Oh, or wait, no, multiple nova. Nova, The, yes. the singular okay, sure, is sure. novum, the plural is nova. Thank and, you. Anyway, so I multiple know that... nova, and also of varying importance, where it's like, on the one hand, 
the worms are super cool and everyone remembers them, but in terms of the cognitive estrangement of the setting, the geriatric spice melange, which allows people to successfully both predict the future and live for very long times and navigate between stars, these are all far more important to how the setting is constructed, and the worms are kind of just there to explain why the spice comes from one place. Yeah, but my, my point being that, like, these are just things that don't exist in the real world yes. that are in Dune, and so yes. we can reasonably and then there's refer also to these as Nova. Shields and uh, still suits, and there's all sorts of things. Anyway, so, but Suvin's argument is that cognitive estrangement means that it is estranged, but it is also cognizable. You can think it through. This is where he draws a distinction with fantasy. There's plenty of, in my opinion, of fantasy that is cognizable and therefore is by Suvin's lights, or at least it would be if he weren't pretty dismissive of fantasy in the 70s. He's still around, so it's entire, and he has, in fact, I think, changed his tune a bit on this. I just haven't read those more recent essays. Sending Darko Suvin an email. Sir, what do you think about Brandon Sanderson's work, which is clearly science fiction by your definition? I have considered doing this but also i don't hate life in myself yeah like the thing about this is so part of like darko suvin's arguments about science fiction have to do with his politics he was a marxist is a marxist, is a marxist. yeah and, and the man and, has never stopped being a marxist a single day of his life and his argument Respect. has always been that science fiction in its exploration of uh other ways things can be and it's utopian yeah. elements it, it, it's exploration of um, things that are estranged, that are not real, that are not part of our experience, but that are cognizable. And are hypothetically possible is yes. also very important to him. He argues that something is science fiction if it is possible by the lights of its own era's science. So, for example, uh, certain H.G. Wells things that are no longer considered to be possible are still science fictional in their era, and therefore that's the historical view upon it, because he he has a whole thing about utopia and dystopia as well. It's all, like, we could go so on about Stephen for a the while. The point I was trying to make is that he sees science fiction as liberatory and as, like, in some sense, like, leftist. As ha um, or at least having a potentiality for that that has not been seized. He also argues that science fiction goes all the way back to Lucian and, uh, and... And with the sort of things that he's... Like, he sees fantasy, conversely, as kind of reactionary or and traditional. Or at the very least... Um, he sees fantasy as kind of, well, he sees folktales as traditionalist, and fantasy he associates specifically with the fantastic, which is a, like, 1700s-ish, um, long 18th century-ish genre that is notable for, like, the, the gothic, the incursion of fantastic elements into a normal world and people's reactions to them. And the fantastic is a very specific thing that isn't the same as modern fantasy, and I think in a lot of ways... He searches out, in the same way he searches out science fiction that fits his definitions and says these are the real science fiction, he searches out elements of modern fantasy, for example, H.P. Lovecraft, that fit his image of fantasy as the eruption of the irrational into a rational universe and the horror that that can cause as the sort of, if not necessarily purely reactionary, the not very revolutionarily useful form of fantasy and its archetype so my point is that makes it very very funny to pull brandon sanderson out and be like well by your arguments this guy is more science fiction than he is fantasy which i think is true but like can you imagine how upset Stephen would be by that i mean brandon sanderson's work is not like marxist no let's just say it's not marxist not move marxist. On from there no. we don't want to bite your other podcast's lunch <sighs> uh anyways it's true, I do have a We've, whole other podcast yeah, where I yeah, yeah, how yeah. not Marxist Brandon Sanderson is. Yeah, 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 settle down. <sighs> so, 
That's another way of being science fictional. But I think the most interesting way for talking about whether or not uh, Moby Dick is science fictional actually comes in a recapitulation and reworking of Suvin's categories by Chu. Uh, so Young Chu's uh, Do Metaphors Dream of Literal Sleep, um, which is a fantastic book of theory about science fiction that argues that uh, cognitive estrangement is not a quality of fictional things, but rather there are things in the real world that are, quote, cognitively estranging, things we can't really think through because of our position in society, our experiences of them, our ability to handle them in language is simply insufficient. And these are real things such as uh, racial trauma, uh, historical, you know, events, uh, the future, the imagination, uh, all sorts of things can't really be fully captured. But science fiction, by creating its, uh, its, by the lyric of science fiction, creating a kind of metaphor, a kind of crystallization of things that work like these things but aren't the same as them, you can have more or less cognitively estranging topics rendered in more or less cognitively estranging language. And that this is the sort of core value of science fiction as an artistic project. And by that definition, Moby Dick is absolutely a science fiction null, not science fiction, but science fiction null text, because it is all about attempting to make legible, attempting to make speakable the unspeakable, attempting to put into a novum, the white whale, uh, a way of thinking about the world and experience of it. In a sense, Ahab's personal trauma, but also, you know, all truth with malice in it. All that stirs the lees of things and cracks the brain. Yes. The wisdom that is woe is what is is estranging to cognition, but is attempt but the work is attempting through language to communicate it. And therefore, by So Young Chu's definition, Moby Dick is a deeply science fictional work in certain aspects. Yeah, I, I think these are interesting things to talk about. Um I also think like uh I think it is interesting to think about how Moby Dick as a work, uh constructs the world of whaling mm, yes. and like the 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 things that happen on the ocean on a whaler that just do not happen in the world that you reader come from yeah and this like, is I, I should mention this is something we talk about a lot because i really want to write about the ways in which science fiction involves the construction of a concretized world which the reader then attempts to learn the logic of and make sense of and how that relates to estrangement of cognition, cognitive estrangement, all these things that go into science fiction as a genre in other ways. And I wasn't actually going to bring that up mostly because I was like, and this one, according to me... Yeah, yeah. But but I, I think that... Someday like, I'll write a book about it. I think that the idea that there's world building in Moby Dick, even yes. that there's specifically like technological and scientific yeah, world no, building, that's, that's I think totally that's very true. present. And in fact, it's even playing with that in the, in the Cytology chapter. It's playing with the idea of a text that communicates how its world works, in part because it's trying to undermine how certain ideas of knowledge function so it's a so in that sense it has things in common with science fiction and also like the epic and the 19th century novel in general has some of these elements that i think science fiction picked up on um so yes i think that that worlding project within moby dick that construction of its universe moral and mechanical and the rules of that universe is a thing it has in common with science fiction even if i'm not willing to say that is the essence of science fiction yeah, like to be to be clear, ultimately, Joao. No, <laughs> it's not science fiction. You know that, I know that, 
Ben knows that. Yeah. <laughs> Look, the more I go into this, uh, this, this grad work, the more I'm like, I don't know what science fiction is. I just know what science fiction can be in different ways of looking at it. Like, this is why you need me on your side, Ben. I'm just like, look, I know it when I see it, and Moby Dick <laughs> is not it. Yeah, no, I mean, look, ultimately, yeah, of the various modes of science fiction that we have proposed, one of them, one of them allows for the idea that Moby Dick is science fictional. Not science fiction, science fictional. And another one, which is sort of the experimental one I'm working on and Mark is helping with in many important ways, is also not, like, just a test for science fiction. So I'm going to say, on balance, like, 80% no. Yeah, my feeling about the definition of science fiction... I'm just going to throw this out there. Okay, so Westfall is someone Ben was reading a book by recently. Yeah, the one who puts forward the Gernsback nominalism position very hard. This is a, yeah, this is a a guy who has strong perspectives on what defines science fiction. And my sense on some level is that his definition of science fiction is, it is the thing that science fiction fans read and recognize as science fiction. Almost. It's things that were published in science fiction magazines in the early to mid uh, or mid to like mid-century America, specifically in Hugo Gernsback's self-described science fiction magazine, that is the that is the body of work that he argues has continued to be reliably read by science fiction readers and enjoyed by them and brought into those spaces. Okay, and so, is, so it, it's, it's is it Damon Knight who has the kind of like flippant like science fiction is the thing that I mean when I point at and say science fiction? Yeah, and he's probably right. So that's the thing. My opinion <laughs> is that the like science fiction is the thing that science fiction fans read and science fiction is what I mean when I point at it and say science fiction. Those are both true, but they apply specifically to me. <laughs> So when when I point at a book and say this is science fiction, then it's science fiction. And when someone else does that, doesn't necessarily count. You know, for the purposes of uh, podcast harmony, no, I'm not going to endorse that. <laughs> I also get to say what is science fiction. Yeah. That, also, would... <laughs> this is this has been a a a, um, a sneak peek of the possibility of us doing a like science fiction theory and science fiction like history podcast at some point so uh yeah i hope you all enjoyed if you've that. enjoyed this fuckery you'll enjoy that fuckery <laughs> the ben promise <sighs> uh anyways so all right we yeah should... it's it's a highly contested concept all right so jaws next question i think there's this is... more yeah there's two more <laughs> one of them is not a shit post but the <laughs> The remaining shit I don't believe post, you. The remaining, Go on. The remaining shitpost question may break you, Ben. I look that last one. I I overflowed like a wellspring. I am prepared for anything. Okay. My soul is the sun. All right, Ben. Please describe how the Moby Dick themed maid cafe would be. The strawberry with whale milk dish is obligatory. Ooh, I would say it's um oily. <laughs> nauseating, covered in blood, and staffed entirely by burly men who don't speak the local language. So probably not successful. Yeah. God. If you want it to be actually successful, then it just has little whales on things, and you can get like a white whale cake, and the servers possibly have little like harpoons that they spear the cake with and move onto your plate. You either get accuracy or you get something that might successfully entice people into it rather than scare them away or, you know, inevitably become a gay bar. 
Yeah, because I was just thinking, like, what would you do to actually, like, the, the okay, the whole idea with a maid cat, or especially, like, a, like, like, there are, there are in Japan, and probably in at least some other countries, but I'm really only familiar with it as a Japanese phenomenon. There are these, like, cafes that are themed after, like, a media franchise, yes. right? And you can go there and get, like, parfaits named after your favorite characters. And it, it <sighs> you know, the whole project kind of encapsulates some of the appeal of these characters, right? Yeah. Um. But I feel like the appeal... It would definitely be racist, just putting that out there, moving along. <sighs> moving along. Moving I mean, along. you're right, it would moving be racist. Along. Moving along. It would along. have to be really racist. That's a... <laughs> moving along. I hope you're happy, Joao. The answer to your question is the main cafe would be racist. Do you need a moment? I... Yeah, I mean, I just... I can eye, hold down the force. My eye once again fell on the sentence, the strawberry with whale milk dish is obligatory, and yeah, my yeah, soul look, cracked. Mine hasn't. Well, thank you for being made of sterner stuff than I. Cool, it, it cool, is, cool, cool. It is sweet sometimes to lean. Ah, fair enough. All right, <laughs> so... I think we've answered enough questions about the Maid Cafe. Do you, do you want to dig into this more? We don't have to. No, I really don't. The last question that Joao has for us, and I think this is, yeah, this is the last question we have in general. Only non-shitposting question voice. Now that you finished the book, could you two expand on the Gnostic interpretation of Moby Dick as a whole? Well, I think it's very straightforward. Ahab is a Gnostic. Moby Dick is the Demiurge. Or rather, even if Moby Dick is not the Demiurge, God is is evil. The creation of the world did involve some kind of either ignorance or evil that has produced a place in which bad things can happen and which is fundamentally unjust. Ishmael does not believe this. Ishmael believes in a just world, or at least he does at the beginning of the book. Yeah. But you can see him as being slowly converted away from that, both by proximity to Ahab and by the events of whaling. Remember, this is his first whaling voyage. And so... I think that the Gnostic interpretation of Moby Dick is basically that there is a wisdom that is woe, and that wisdom is the knowledge that this world is in some way imprisoning, that this world is unjust, that God is, well, the creator, let's say, is unkind. However, Ahab does speak about Gnostic doctrines such as, for example, the idea of something further than and more numinous than the creator god of this world. The storm, and the Gnostic Demiurge is often associated with the storm and the thunder, uh, not least because the Gnostic Demiurge is often associated with the acts of God in, uh, you know, the Hebrew Bible. Um, therefore, he has this idea of a higher power, a Sophia, a wisdom, a thing, that sweet mother whose name, who is unknown, um, which, again, that's straightforwardly Gnostic, so therefore there might be something higher. Perhaps Ishmael is even right that there is a reconciliation higher than the world, but the world itself, the material world, is cruel. It kills. It slays men indiscriminately, and when Ahab goes against it, he is not strong enough to defeat it. But perhaps he's right. So that's the Gnostic interpretation as I see it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, like, your your perspective on, like, what Ishmael's perspective on this, I think... I I think that the whiteness of the whale as a chapter is, mm -hmm. is like, pivotal to this stuff. Because, mm -hmm. you know, in that chapter, Ishmael is attempting to grapple with and express some kind of horror that he experiences in whiteness that also seems to be beyond the world. Mm -hmm. Um 
I think one like very significant line here is he says, though in many of its aspects, this visible world seems formed in love, the invisible spheres were formed in fright. And so there is some sense that even spiritual existence beyond uh, the visible world is still terrifying. And I, I think that hmm. is like yeah. There's also these lines like uh, Noah's flood has not receded. Two thirds of the world are still its darker side. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Yes. Uh, yeah. No. You're right, though. Like I, I think that like uh, what I want to say is invisible might not mean just the spiritual, but literally the hidden, the occult. Mm. What is hidden below the ocean? Because the ocean figures so often as this symbol of the unknowable depths. There are things down there that none can know, and whales come up from there. Leviathan curls and turns in the deep and therefore you know two-thirds of the world is hidden from humanity and so the belief that this is a good world is fundamentally ignorant yeah yeah i think that's one one way of talking about this i do think that fundamentally this novel is not like proposing ahab's i mean what you might call ahab's like straightforwardly or even like quote-unquote canonically gnostic perspective i don't think the book is like yeah ahab is right moby dick is evil god and that's like what's happening here i think i'm i am willing to endorse the idea that while ahab's response to it may not be the healthiest or the most like correct in terms of what you should do I'm willing to say that given Ahab's confrontations with the Thunder and his, you know, ability to find Moby Dick and all of the signs that he does have, an imperial brain, that he does have Gnosis, I'm willing to say that at least a fair reading of the book is that Ahab is right, but that his rightness does not allow him to overpower God. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Just saying that that is a defensible reading. Yeah, no, I I don't think you're wrong about that. Um, I, I just, I, I think that there exist interpretations of this novel where, um, rather than a demiurgic power beyond the world that has, like, a, a true holy power past it, which I think is basically what Ahab expresses and which I think would be a typical Gnostic position, I think there are interpretations of this novel where what is actually going on metaphysically is either like an actually fundamentally meaningless universe not mm. a universe made by a cruel god but a but universe... a simply physical and material universe exactly a universe where moby dick is just a dumb brute and that's the horror of it all you know i think that's um, fair i think that that is somewhat undermined by the prophecy which comes true in such specifics i mean that's true i don't think you can look at the world of moby dick as one in which no spiritual elements operate but i do think it's entirely possible for it to be a world in which there are spiritual elements but there is no salvation or meaning mm. um like yeah fadala exists and he can do this powerful thing that is prophecy but that doesn't mean that Fadala has anything to do with, with God, you know, or with salvation. Yeah, um, yeah. And, I think that I think that is a defensible interpretation. And, and I also think that you know, um, I I also think that a, a a defensible possibility here is that there does exist a sort of evil creator God. But there's nothing outside that. Mm, just, so I the think, world is malicious and also the world is malicious. Yes. Like, I think that Ahab's fundamental position on what the universe is, is that there exists ultimately 
beyond the cruelty of the material realm, a truth that is, like, bright. Mm, see, I, I'm i not sure that Ahab necessarily believes there's a truth that is bright. He does kind of seem to think that he is hellbound for his rebellion against God. I think it is more that he claims that there is, if not a truth that is going to save him, that there is a meaningful truth, that God is not all-powerful, that there is and a limit to that and a, you know, a higher thing. And again, the doctrinaire Gnostic position would be that there is a pleroma beyond the Demiurge, which is higher and greater that the Archons do not know of or do not enter. But I think that you can also take Ahab as simply saying, I don't care if you can condemn me to hell, I'm not going to kneel to you. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's true. Um, you know, from hell's heart, I stab at thee. Yes, yes. Uh, there is, of course, a eh, slightly, if you're straightforwardly atheistic interpretation, but that has to deal with the prophecy, which is real weird. But on the other hand, you're right that prophecy does not imply an afterlife. Yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't think it does. Um, and you know, I, yeah, there are some books that have prophecies that come true that put in the effort to kind of obfuscate them. Like I think that actually the prophecies that. Elijah gives are the kind where it's like you don't have to believe in any supernatural power there you just have yeah, to believe yeah. that he knows that Ahab has a sketchy past but um yeah Fidala is it's it's very hard to credit the specificity of what Fidala is about yeah to say. they're it's like trying to claim that the witches in Macbeth were charlatans you know yeah yeah <sighs> so that I think I think that mostly covers the sort of Gnostic elements. Otherwise, uh, going back to the episode where we talk about the candles would get a bunch of specifics about that if you want to go back and, like, crawl through that speech. Um, I We had a ton of fun recording that, so, you yeah, know, yeah. Uh, I recommend it. It's a good episode. Um, but, yeah, I think that more or less covers the sort of Gnostic interpretation. I do want to mention one other thing, which is that uh, Melville apparently wrote in a le letter about uh, Moby Dick I have written an evil book. Yeah, Melville's letters about this book are absolutely something I want to delve into at some point. We don't have, like, explicit plans about that, but... Yeah, yeah, we could put it on the docket for an appendix, but the the thing where he says an evil book, that, for me, speaks also to the idea that he was quite possibly intentionally incorporating heresies, especially since uh, his version of Gnosticism that he has on show here with the Ophites, which, so we know he's aware of Gnostic heresies. Uh, Irenaeus... Um, who wrote about Gnosticism in his, like, On Heresies or whatever it was called, uh, I, don't, I don't care that much for Irenaeus, um, did, in his heresiology, expound upon the Gnostic doctrine, and it would have been the kind of things that have shown up in the book. So it's possible, and this was again mentioned, I think, in The Candles and elsewhere, that Ahab is meant to have specifically developed these ideas, and Melville is drawn on Irenaeus for their image. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think we have pretty much... Covered the all the questions. What we want to talk about. Yeah. yeah, we've answered all the questions. We've answered all the questions. We mentioned the certificate again. If you'd like a certificate, please let us know. I'll whip you up a JPEG. Um, <laughs> we have dealt with the character list. We've dealt with the rankings of chapters, which was a lot of fun. And again, there is an HTML file to let you rank chapters yourself if you have the time to spend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we, so yeah, yeah. I can't think of anything else. So I guess next time we'll be doing appendices uh, and. Probably starting with the really classic Moby Dick film. Yeah, probably. We'll, we'll, we'll let people know what we're actually starting with. But in the meantime, I guess back to our stove boat. You know, I was thinking about that, and I didn't come to any kind of conclusions about 
what we do. So yeah, uh, I guess what song is it we sing to, man? Uh, a stove boat. <laughs> really? Okay. 